G'day Noblars, AOS Coach here, and we are talking all things Ogre Moor Tribes. You got yourself a new set of rules, you've got a new unit, you've got a new terrain feature, and we're going to talk a little Ogres here and talk about where you are in the current meta, what do we like with our picks, how are we building our list in General Sample 2023 with our Primal Magic dice, uh, you, your new Gorges, are we building around it? A lot of things happening in the Ogre world. And I am joined by the head butcher himself, the ambassador of the meat dimensions. Um, we have Carson Whitlock, a top performing, the top performing Ogre Moore Tribe player, according to the ITC. Uh, you are highly ranked on the Wohammer stats as well as ITC player rankings with gut busting performances like the first at Kippers Melee, uh, you did sixth at the GW Open in Tacoma, as well as you came fourth at the Sparkle Death Party. And for anyone who might recognize that glorious mustache, uh, not only is he chopping down trees in the forest, he's also, uh, you've probably seen him as a reoccurring guest on uh, Saga of Dice. So they stream on a, a, every Wednesday and do battle reports. Rob uh, does incredible work out there and you're a reoccurring guest. But Carson, g'day, welcome. And for the folks who don't know who you are, do you want to introduce yourself and how you got into Ogres? Yeah, absolutely. Also, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it's awesome to be on the show and talk endlessly for about Ogres for about two hours, which nobody has ever allowed me to do before. So thank you for that, allowing me to have a platform. Um, but yeah, I'm Carson. Uh, I really only started being competitive in AOS for this year. I think the first tournament I went to was back in March, um, which was just like a little RTT, which was a lot of fun. Um, I got into Ogres probably like four years ago, uh, just on a whim. I used to play 40k and my brother was just like, hey, we're going to play iOS now. And he picked up some Seraphon and I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to pick up Beast Claw Raiders because that's like big monsters and I love big, big monster trucks and I'm sure all of the Ogre players love them too. Um, and then I kind of like was in and out of the hobby for a bit and I actually ended up working on a uh, Age of Sigmar video game, which kind of got me back into it, uh, Stormground. So that's why I'm here. I did not know that. That is very, very cool. I actually just pre-ordered the Realms of Ruin uh, yesterday, so it drops while we're in Atlanta. So I paid for it. So as soon as I get back to hotel Wi-Fi, I can download it back for my flight back back home. So I'm I'm pretty excited to see the Age of Sigmar world building in video game form. And like Total War's been awesome. So I know this is like this is a completely different side stream, but. Um, I'm, I'm super glad that we're seeing more and more AOS games because I look over the fence in 40K and they have so many great games and uh, I, I, get, I get jealous. I'm like, okay, give me Bolt Gun, but give me like a Stormcast Hammer. I'm just going to smashing things as a Liberator. Like I'm I'm down for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Realms of Ruin looks really cool. I, th I really like what they're doing with the RTS genre. Like they're focusing a little bit more on making it accessible to consoles, which is really nice too. Like... You can't just have a PC game nowadays, unfortunately, when it's big enough. it's you got to have people from all platforms. So it's good that they're accommodating well, that. Well, it's funny you say that, actually, because I just bought myself a stream deck for this flight. So I've been playing little handheld, like with stream. Uh, it's incredible. Like I'm, I can't believe I didn't buy it sooner. But speaking of buying things sooner, uh, I should probably mention Games Workshop did send me this book in advance. So thank you, Games Workshop. Also, if you are thinking about buying um, your hobby, like your... Um, your long hunt, your ogre box, your gorges and stuff like that. Um, 
You can buy it through the affiliate links uh, down below, Warp 5 Minis in the USA and uh, Element Games in the UK, who are our affiliate partner of mine. So check out the links, help the channel. Uh, all is appreciated. But this is this is an interesting book. Uh, Ogre Players, uh, I don't know if you, you particularly need this book. I mean, the lore is, is fun. It's always interesting. But it's not like it's a complete revamp of your faction uh, and we'll go through the rules as the gorges we'll go through the more pit which are also on Warhammer community if i remember correctly if yeah. i remember correctly i think so <laughs> so as a let's let's start the just general sample 2023 first let's warm up into this a little let's start the pot put the put the logs under the fire of the more pit and let's start the cooking how are you finding them so far? It's been four months now, four to five months. Uh, I can't remember exactly when General's Handbook uh, 2023 dropped. Ogres are definitely not a faction that people are talking about. And when people do talk about them, it's often the other side, which is, you know, your Frost Lords, your, your Beast Claw Raider side. You know, we've got different battle tactics, especially for people turn one, they seem a little harder. How are you just finding ogres in general and their level to compete in in the current season? Yeah, I think ogres are in a really interesting spot right now because we kind of see before the general's handbook was actually released and we saw all the rules, we were like, okay, magic dom is gonna absolutely dominate the meta. You're gonna see a lot of zinch, a lot of seraphon, uh, people that can really make the most out of like primal dice and whatnot and shutting other people down. But it's almost kind of been like you you have that for sure, but you also have armies that can completely shut down any sort of magical armies. Like you have Corn, which is going to be actively benefiting from having spells targeting them sometimes. Uh, you have Null Myriad, which is going to be just straight up ignoring most of the offensive output. But Ogres doesn't really care one way or the other. Like it doesn't counter any magic army, but it also doesn't particularly care if its magic goes off. So a lot of the spells that Ogre have, Ogres have is like, uh, they'll be very beneficial, they'll be utility, but they won't be directly like targeting another unit of your opponents. Um, so it's like, if it goes off, great. If not, not a big deal. So I found that ogres are in an interesting spot where you can kind of build like a utility army uh, that kind of deals with everyone pretty well, but doesn't directly counter anyone and doesn't really directly get countered by anyone either. So, yeah. Seems really much like if you're a destruction player in general, you know, when I play with my sons, it's very similar. Like, okay, it spells off. Like, yeah, I've got some primal dice. I'll put them against that one critical spell or two critical spells that I don't want, but I, I can't battle you in the magical game. And, you know, Ogres has a lot of prayers as well. You, it's, it's interesting as well because, you know, I know when the current season kind of started and you could teleport your little blizzard wizards, things like your Frostal on Stonehorns hated that. I could delete a Frostal on Stonehorn with less than 100 points with a blizzard wizard who could teleport. That's changed. So all of a sudden, um, the landscape for us, especially as Ogres players, it's, it feels like it's gotten fairer. You know, you're less likely to loot those big trade pieces. Yeah, absolutely. But to be honest, uh, in the tournaments that I've been to, I saw less of that. People like teleporting a wizard just outside me, uh, just outside of like range to, or sorry, just inside range to blow up a stone horn. And more so people just kind of hiding a blizzard piece inside their castle. So that it's like, they're not going to come to me, which means that I don't have anything to like counterattack. But I also can't just absolutely smash into them because chances are I'm not going to hit that blizzard wizard. And next turn, it's just going to absolutely blow something up. Um, 
So that part kind of hasn't changed, though I am glad to not be worried about a teleporting wizard. Like it does ease my mind a little bit, but it's still something to be worried about for sure. Yeah, absolutely. As you are, and people are finding that, you know, primal magic dice becoming more defensive, you know, trying to unbind, you know, not, not many people are building around the blizzard, although it is still a great spell, but more people are trying to stop you from casting that critical buff spell. You are also seeing a bunch of things, right? It's interesting, actually. I was, I, you know, I've been doing this series for a while now, talking to people as I revisit the, the journal's handbook. And what really stood out to me was that this particular season, you've had no point changes. You have no rule changes. Now, every other faction has had a rule either added or manipulated or uh, a battle tactic added. But ogres are pretty untouched. So um, that might be mean a good thing. It's not like, you know, you're kind of balanced, like you're not crazy too good and you need to be kind of brought down a, a peg. And you're also not at the bottom of the rung where you need a bit of help to compete. You're in this nice little middle ground. Is that is that kind of your your experience so far in the last couple of months? It is, and it's been a cause of great anxiety for me because my list sits exactly at 2,000 points. So every time a battle school is announced, I'm just like, please don't add 10 points to my list. It'll ruin everything because like every unit in my list is is extremely necessary uh, to make it work. So, but yeah, like for the most part, it, that's been the case. Uh, we started off the season with a battle scroll that gave us a lot of buffs. Like, Gluttons and Iron Guts went down in points a lot. Uh, Frostlord went up by 10 points, I think, or 20 points. Um, so it was enough for me to actually fit a unit of Noblars into my list, which is like, it's been invaluable. So, yeah. Speaking of Noblars, um, do you have any favorite units that have been doing well for you right now, whether it's scoring battle tactics? And we will get to battle tactics and kind of get into the weeds a little further, but just any particular units that have really started to resonate this particular season, either something that's always been good, that is still good today, or a unit that is like, you know what, you're a bit of a sleeper, like let's say the Blood, blood Pelt Hunter. Like, yeah, people didn't really use it, but now because of X, you know, they've just, you know, tenfolded their value yeah i think um the firebelly has been like a, a sleeper unit that has just really amplified my army like i literally take him for one spell which is a 12 inch bubble of uh friendly units within it holy or minus one to hit um which is just extremely good for ogres because we kind of struggle with saves uh we have a lot of wounds but the less damage we can take the better and there's been times where that firebelly is like one me games i'll have a stonehorn sitting out front like ready for my opponent to charge it with everything, but it's like minus one to wound, has plus one to save from Mystic Shield. Maybe I finest houred it and it's minus one to hit. And then someone puts like nine Gore Gruntas into it and it does like two damage. And I'm like, cool, sounds good. I'm going to Counter-Strike now. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's been amazing. I'm actually glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my pick. Like even the Fire Breath as well, being able to just do a bunch of Horde clearing. I mean, obviously it's, it's capped to maximum of 10 damage, but um uh, hordes have definitely returned to the table you know getting getting volume of attacks is something that can be challenging at times for for ogre players depending on how you build that i i i'm glad you call that out because it's a wizard it does neat things it plays perfectly into the season yeah absolutely any other any other top picks should i be building my army around frostlord on stonehorns or you know uh, are you finding that the gut buster side is is as competitive? Like, where, where are you at? I mean, if you give me enough time, I'm just going to go down my whole list. But yeah, you definitely want a, a Frost Loader on Stonehorn in every army you take. Um, I have strong feelings about Stonehorns, where I think one is amazing. 
it's one of the best units in the game. But if you take five, it's like very diminishing returns. It's like if you go to Costco and get a hot dog, that hot dog is going to be great. But if you eat five hot dogs in a row, you're probably going to kind of hate yourself after a little bit. So. Yeah. Oh, that, that is, that's brilliant. I've never had a, a Costco hot dog, but I'll, uh, I'll, I, I can, I can resonate in some other area. Like yeah. just have one. Exactly. But Frost Lords are, you can stack a lot of buffs on them, but by default, they're a little bit swingy. Like Rock Hard Horns are forced to hit, which is really rough, especially if you're like charging into a Bloodthirster, anything that's minus one to hit or wound or something like that. Like you can end up doing really low damage. But if you have that Frost Lord that suddenly has Mystic Shield, Maybe it has Molten Entrails for more damage. Maybe it has uh, Hoarfrost to make Rockwood Horn sitting on like ones or twos or something. The more buffs you can stack on it, the better. And you can only do the monsters. You can only do each monster's action once. And the Stone Horn is there to basically surf over your enemy units and pick off something you know valuable in the back line. Um, and because you can really only do that with one Stone Horn, if you have five, you kind of have like four out of position or like not in the best spot. And they're actually not great for Horde clearing, in my opinion, because they can be so swingy. Yeah, no, I, I like it. I think even if I was purely gut busters, having a, a stone horn in my list, that that monstrous rampage, and we will get to it. Um, if you don't know what we're talking about here, um, it's such a good one. Like it horror. If I think about my gits and my my squeak being able to jump in, fight, and then yeet out for another day, and I think that's good. That particular monstrous rampage is just turns up to eleven. It's just it, horrifying for. Probably right now for castle armies too, where people are probably building, as you said, more castles, having more wizards protected, being able to jump over those screens if the, the space is appropriate and get into that juicy center and you'll, you'll collapse an opponent. Yeah, absolutely. The amount of times I've heard stonehorn-sized hole in my games at tournaments is like, I'd be a millionaire if I had a neck leech time. <laughs> like it's it's been a lot because people are like, okay, well I'm gonna move these models in this way, but oh, there's a stone horde size hole right here, so I have to shift this guy this way slightly, and then you end up this like super spread out, weird looking castle that they don't really want to do because they know you can jump over it. Which you can take advantage of because now they're spread out, which means you yep. know it allows you to yeah do a lot of cool things. Any other units that you would call out, or do you want to get into maybe the the War Scrolls, the Gorja? Let's let's get into the War Scrolls because I'll I'll talk about my list at the end oh. of the stream, presumably. So <laughs> yeah. we will definitely always talk lists, but we got to get through the rules first to understand yep. the context of the list because, as you've also said, you're ten points uh, away from having to you know rewrite your list. So. Should that happen, what's the theory and, and how do we actually build a good Ogres list? But let's talk rules. Let's talk the first new War Scroll. So there is one new unit, uh, one uh, new terrain feature, and you have these Armies of Renown. So that's the three things coming to Ogres. If you don't want to play them, cool, keep doing what you're doing. We'll talk about your book, uh, but you do have some extra things. So this War Scroll is for the Gorja Moor Pack. Uh, I, we can only assume, and the fair assumption would be, is that this will replace the Gorgia's War Scroll. So currently you pay uh, one Gorgia for 80 points. You're now getting five for 220 points. It is a completely different War Scroll. And as you can see here, movement of six, save of six, uh, bravery of eight, and wounds of five. So it's actually gone down slightly at one wound, but you probably get more wounds overall because you're getting five for 220. Yeah. 
It has one melee attack where previously it used to have two profiles, but the quality is probably better. Oh, look, I'll, I'll leave it to you, Carson. Like, what are you? What are your thoughts on the current War Scroll? I assume because it's on Warcom, everyone's had a look at it at this particular point. Yeah, this is an interesting War Scroll. Um, uh, I think the first thing that people are probably going to do is compare this to like the most basic ogre unit, which is gluttons, and you'll see like, okay, it's got one worse save, one more wound. You're basically getting 25 wounds on a six up save instead of 24 wounds on a uh, five up save, um, which is like not a great trade off so far. Um, this unit can deep strike, which is really good. Uh, previously, or I guess the only things that can do that in ogres right now, I believe, are frost sabers, the ice Barrel hunter, and the existing gorger. Um, and no one really takes any of those because they don't have any benefit aside from that, unfortunately. Um, the big thing here is the uh, agonizing roar, which is basically anytime something receives a command within 12 inches of this unit, or of a cave howler specifically, um, on a 5-up, they just don't hear it, um, which can be pretty devastating for some armies. Um, one that comes to mind is like KO. If you were to just like set this up outside of uh, 9 of like a bunch of KO boats and didn't give them enough room to actually escape, um, that would be pretty bad if they suddenly just can't fly high for a turn, because that just really, that's what they rely on a lot of the time. Um, but I think that in comparison to a glutton, like defensively and offensively, it's much worse. Uh, just because with a glutton, you can give them paired ogre clubs and blunt blades, and the attack profile is actually the exact same. It's threes, threes, minus one, two damage. Uh, whereas these guys have three attacks instead of four, uh, which is a little, a little rough. But I think there's some play here. Um, they're 20 points less than a unit of gluttons. Um, they don't get plus one to charge, which is kind of rough. Um, almost everything in Ogres does, like Glutton's Iron Guts, the Frost Lord gives an aura of it. Like it's, it's pretty prevalent. So for these guys not to have it, it's a little tough. So you can't really rely on dropping them in and then charging in either. And also another issue is that these guys don't necessarily unlock another battle tactic for you unless you do nothing with them for a turn. Um, because one thing to keep in mind about Surround and Destroy is that you have to pick a unit that's already on the battlefield to be touching a board edge, whereas these guys are going to be coming in from deep strike. So you could drop them in and then do nothing with them for a turn. But as we'll see later, that's kind of never what you want to do with ogres. Like if they're not actively trying to kill something or currently killing something, then they're kind of just wasting time. Um, and with how squishy they are, they're really easy to pick off if you do something like that. So yeah, that was a long-winded answer, but it's complicated is my final answer probably. <laughs> No, no, it's it's a it's a good you know thinking approach because there's there's multiple layers here. So let's start off at the absolute fundamental. Is this a good war scroll? And you look at it, and the, the attacks are quality. You know, you're hitting threes, wounding threes, ren one, two damage, pretty consistent. Five damage, move six. Okay, that's that's pretty good. Um, you know, you get five models, so you're getting twenty five wounds for two hundred points. That's fair. Um, interesting rule. You got the antagonizing rule, being able to shut down commands within twelve, within twelve, within uh, on a five up. That's a good rule. Um, as you said, you can deep strike. Very good. Then you compare the Gorger more pack to the general Gorger. There's obviously pros and cons. The general Gorger was just one model, so it didn't mean you had to commit as much of your force to the Gorger. And for some people, they might have really liked the Gruesome Devourers, which was just an automatic, can't receive inspiring presence or rally, no dice roll. So for some people, they'll go, I really miss the guarantee of inspiring presence rally shutdown. For others, they'll go, I really like the ability to be able to um, stop all our attack, all our defense, 
and other ones because it's a bit more open. Yeah. Yeah, the one, I guess, caveat with the old ability, though, is that they had to be in combat in order to shut those things off. And because it was so, I think it was six wounds on a six up save. That's uh, they easy. were yeah yeah they were six wounds six up save and you had yeah you had to be eating and the enemy had to be within nine inches yeah so that's a lot of stuff so i guess one thing that you could do is charge it into a, a screen which you know is not going to have a lot of offensive output and that could be useful for sure but it's kind of it's difficult to actually satisfy that unfortunately because even a screen can squeak through six wounds if it gets if it spikes right you know, you never know what can happen. Whereas I think with this one, it's a little bit more reliable on the five plus. Um, and there's another thing that's kind of beneficial too, is that because it's all commands, if you do charge with this unit, uh, there's a one third chance that you could ignore like an Unleash Hell, for instance, uh, which could be really devastating for some armies like in new cities as it's coming up, I'm sure they're going to be wanting to do that all the time. Uh, and if you have a one third chance of just shutting that off, then that's huge, right? So yeah, but yeah, generally, no, go ahead, sorry. No, no, no. I was, I was just going to say, like, that's a, that's a really good point. And then the last part that I was going to mention, which ties into what you said, was it's a good war scroll, no doubt about it. But is it better than keeping with something within the gut busters, you know? And that's because I'm. It's now not at eighty points. Oh, you know, my list is nineteen hundred. I can afford a gorger. Now it's two twenty. It's the same challenge that Ard Boys have in Auric Warclans, where it's like. It's now a commitment of 220 points. This could be something else. This could be the uh, Underworld War Ban. This could be uh, uh, two, almost two fire bellies. This could be my Antorian Acolyte Battalion in having two Blizzard Wizards. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely more experimentation to be done. Like, I, I haven't actually gotten to play a game with these guys yet. I will be playing one tomorrow, so I'll report back. But it's going to be... It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, and there's other things to consider too. Like uh, in my list specifically, I would probably be trading this out for a unit of gluttons, which frees up 20 points in my list, which as I said before, I'm exactly at 2000. So all of a sudden now I have a chance at a triumph, which is pretty nice. Uh, whereas I never had that previously. So it's kind of getting me two of those benefits. And I also view it as like security. So if my list does end up going up by 10 points in the next battle scroll, it's a very easy choice for me to be like, okay, I can either have no gluttons at all, or I can trade one unit of gluttons for a unit of gorgers and then keep the same list and be 10 points under instead. Um, so there's there's definitely benefits there, but just more experimentation to be done. Let's assume that you were going to run a list with gorgers. Um, would you run multiple units? And if you were going to take multiple units, would you just run them as like a block of 10 or two blocks of five? Uh, so me personally, I tend not to like drastically change my list very often. So probably what I would do is I would start by adding one unit, seeing how it performs, and then maybe continuing on past that. Uh, but if someone did want to run a whole bunch of gorgers, I would probably not run them in uh, group blocks of 10. Um, just because more likely than not, you're probably going to run these guys in Meat Fist. Uh, and Meat Fist definitely have heavily like favors MSU units. Uh, you know, you, you want to have multiple units that are going to be the source of trampling charge rolls uh, rather than like one big block of 10. And another reason is that even though these guys have pretty good bravery of eight, um, a unit of five effectively just means that it's ignoring bravery until it's dead uh, on eight bravery because they have plus two bravery in combat. So, yeah, I, I, would, I would probably do the multiple groups of five in that case. 
Yeah, I agree. I would start off with one. I don't know if uh, there's enough synergy for me that I'd want to take multiple more packs. If I was going to take 440 points worth of Gorges, uh, maybe I'm an absolute fiend and I love these models. I think to your point, I would also take them in two units of five because having two units to deep strike um, is a much better approach than having a big block of 10 and trying to find the board space where you can appropriately come out from an ambush uh, and not be screened out. Yeah. And the nice thing about having two units is that all of a sudden now you have two 12-inch bubbles of potentially ignoring your opponent's commands too. Um, so it just makes it more tricky for your opponent to navigate. Yeah, if this was like the older season where you, because these are on large bases as well, like, you know, if you take a unit of 10, you're not going to get all of those into combat. So um, so you, having two units of five just gives you way more flexibility if you were going to go down that route. Yeah, and speaking of uh, the old season, the change from uh, five to six for coherency, that doesn't really affect these guys much. But that's another thing to consider too, is that if you're running a block of 10 of these guys, all of a sudden you have to run them incoherency instead of just in a big string of uh, five in a row. So overall, would you say you like this unit or or is it one that you won't be using for a while? Like where where do you stand? Like you know, give the give the ogre players some guidance on, on what they do with their gorges right now. I actually really like this unit. Um, just because ogres have ogres are a very honest army where it's just like here's my war scroll. I'm going to run at you, and you're going to see exactly what's going to happen if I manage to get in combat with you. But with these guys, it adds a little bit of tech to the list, uh, where it's like, OK, now I can deep strike something. Now I can potentially shut off some things of yours. Maybe I can block you from going a certain area. Like I, I could see people playing this in a way where you drop your quarters outside of nine, and then just intentionally don't charge, so that all of a sudden you have a giant block of wounds that your opponent has to move through so they can't get to the rest of your army where your actual hammers are. Um, so. There's a lot of play here. And I also like that they're not so good that you have to take them now, which is I know that that, that can happen sometimes. And it's nice to not have an obligation. And they're not so bad that you would never take them. So there's a lot of play there. Yeah, no, you're right. They're, they're quite middle. Like, they're not crazy good, but they're also not bad. Like, they sit in this middle. And it depends on do you need this tech? Do you find yourself requiring ambush? Do you need? Do you find you need certain things like this consistent profile? You need you know, uh, a unit with a high amount of wounds, like whatever that might be, it's it's a it's a decent utility piece. I guess my only other question before we move to the more pit, which I'm really excited to talk to you about, as soon as I saw the war scroll about the monstrous rampage, it was so hard not to tell anybody until it was officially released. I looked at it and I like lost my mind. But the last question I've got about the Ogre, the, the Gorge of more pack is, you obviously have a really strong background, especially in the Gutbuster side, but we haven't really talked a lot about the other side, the Beast Claw Raider side. Imagine you were playing more of a, you know, Stonehorn, Thunder Task, you know, Beast Rider type build. Do you see value in using the Gorges because you're not requiring as much synergy? They aren't battle line options, unfortunately, so you're not going to be able to, you know, find some cheaper points and, and unlock a, a battle line. What's your thoughts on Beast Claw Raider side using Gorges? I probably wouldn't. Um, one thing that someone might think is like, okay, I can drop the Gorges behind and prevent a redeploy for my uh, Stonehorns or something, but they have to come in at the end of the movement phase, unfortunately, so that doesn't quite work. Um, another issue is that you already 
are not having issues whatsoever reaching your opponent with Beast Claw Raiders because you have 14 inch move across the board. If you have multiple Stone Horns, you could have like potentially plus two to charge even, or, you know, you're not having a problem getting into combat uh, or getting to your opponent. And I think that's kind of what this War Scroll solves uh, for Gutbusters is that kind of like slow ish movement across the board. So I would, I would not. Actually, I lied to you. I've got a final question. I do. I, okay. I just thought about this because you <laughs> you you did mention the Icebrow Hunter, and maybe I'm already taking the Icebrow Hunter with my kitty cats uh, for this particular reason, for ambushing, to to challenge back objectives, to sneak on and steal objectives, or you know get into a juicy castle center, whatever whatever I might be using a Frost Saber Icebrow Hunter combination for would you trade that combination for a unit of gorges it works out to be 20 points more expensive to take the gorges being that frost savers are 80 uh icebrow hunters 120 so it's 200 versus 220. yeah i would definitely make that trade um 20 points is not a huge amount uh and also the offensive output is going to be far more with gorgers and then in addition, you also have the tech piece of the potentially shutting off commands too. Whereas like, unfortunately, Frost Sabers, like they can get into combat, but they're not particularly slappy. And then they'll, they'll fall over if they're coughed at. Like it's not very, there's not a lot of staying power. And granted, there's not a lot of staying power here either, but at least it's 25 wounds, right? Yeah, I, anyone who's ever run an Ice Barrel Hunter with Yetis, I feel like Frost, Frost Sabers, it's annoying and it'll steal an objective for a turn and maybe it'll soak up an Unleashed Hell. It'll be annoying. I've, I can't say I've ever been really worried about a threat of ambush from them, yeah. but, but Gorgeous, I absolutely would, especially if I've got like a Wizard Castle sitting at the back and my forces move forward that this concerns me a lot more so I, I would probably agree with you at this particular point too but it's two units versus one but you're getting yep. more wounds in, in a unit two units versus one can be a detriment sometimes too like if you're intending to if you're intending to run a battle regiment like that could be the difference between you being one or two drops so bingo bingo or having two units actually might be the difference between fulfilling a secondary battalion so Pros and cons. That's Pros true. and cons. Yeah. Alrighty. Next is Wawawiwa, the Moor Pit. So um, for the folks at home, the Moor Pit is a terrain feature available for the Ogre Moor tribes. Do I get the Moor Pit and the Moor Pot? The answer is no. You must choose which one you're taking and you list it on your army list. So um, really thinking about this, especially if you're going to tournaments, is going to be critical. So... Carson, what's your thoughts on the more pit so far? There's some really interesting rules, especially when you start looking at the head butcher rule and the synergy with the head with having a butcher in your list, as well as my personal favorite rule, it fights back. Yeah, this is a really cool war scroll. Um, I, I think that the short answer in the beginning is going to be if you're already running Beast Claw Raiders, you probably shouldn't bring this. But if you're already running Gutbusters, you probably should bring this. Um, and the reason for that is because every charge phase, uh, this this could potentially hurt you, right? Uh, the player whose turn is taking place must roll a dice for each unit in their army that is within 12 of the terrain feature and 12 of enemy units. Chances are, so, uh, and also there's one uh, exclusion, which is that if it's a gut buster unit, it doesn't have any effect. Um, 
So if you're running all stone horns, this ability is unfortunately going to trigger for basically everything in your army. So you could just potentially be hurting yourself, which is not great. Um, and the other unfortunate thing is because when you're running all stone horns, you want to be way over the board in your opponent's face. So there's a chance that the mop head is only in range of your stone horns, but not in range of your opponents. Um, so it can actually be like an active liability in a beast claw raiders list. However, if you're running under guts, that's like a heavy shooting castle list or something like that. This is amazing because you want people to be close to you and taking damage for being close to you. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I think that the abilities that it has are pretty cool. Um, it's just effectively saying like, you can't get close to ogres without being in combat with ogres, which is what ogres really want. Uh, they love being in combat with people because they love slapping people and eating them. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of gives your opponent a dilemma. Like maybe they want to play for a double turn, but they want, don't want to get too close because they could potentially get hurt quite a bit by this. Um, the head butcher ability I'm a little bit conflicted about just because it's probably not going to really do anything to a lot of armies, especially if you're going against like OBR, who most of the time, like the minimum wound count is going to be like three. Uh, then it's just literally impossible for that ability to do anything against them. Um, and just as a recap, that's uh, in your hero phase, if you have a butcher inside of this garrisoning it, you pick a unit within 18 inches, uh, roll a d6. If it's more than twice that enemy unit's wound characteristic, then one model is slain. So if you have anything two or two or less wounds, then it's possible to slay something, but otherwise it's not, which kind of sucks. But yeah. Again, a long-winded response. I'm probably going to be experimenting with using this a little bit too, but I've got two units in my army that are going to get hurt by this, which are the Firebelly, which unfortunately is not Gutbusters, gut and the Stonehorn, which is Beast Claw Raiders. So. so if I think about what you've said so far, as a Beast Claw Raider player, I'm definitely reconsidering how I use this. Now, do I not take the Morpid? No, but I guess... The challenges are is that you're likely moving forward, so you're going to be out of range because it is a 12-inch range. Uh, I mean, the head head butcher rule is an 18 rule. The throat uh, the throat of Gert is a 12-inch rule. So, thinking about the battle plans and thinking about where the fights go, often you may be outside of those ranges, and because it is gutbuster immunity only there's a likelihood you're going to hurt yourself. So thinking about how you maximize this is going to be a real interesting thought. And are you even taking a butcher in a uh, in that particular build in the first place? You know, you may find you're currently not. So do you want to add a butcher tax for the sake of using the head butcher rule? In the yep. ogre side, yep, sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. And then from the ogre side, you're definitely seeing some real value from this. Yeah, absolutely. There is one key difference uh, as well, which is that the Maw Pot has to be set up wholly within your territory, whereas this has to be set up wholly outside of enemy territory. Um, so in any map that has no man's land, this could be pretty big. Like if you're playing Geomantic Pulse and there's a big 22-inch gap in the center where uh, you can place this anywhere, you could basically place it just outside of your opponent's territory, and it actually messes with them pretty bad. Um, and it also means that it's going to be like hurting them as you get closer to them with your army. So that's something to consider too, whereas the mall pod has to stay way, way back. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, a, it's an excellent call out. I was going to go to that one as well as it fights back. So 
Yes. Um, really good call out because you're right. You know, some some battle plans where uh, there is no no man's land. It's just your territory, my territory. So it, you just bring it as far forward as possible. And the segue to that is there's a risk. You put it close to a, your opponent's army, and they're like, "I need to get rid of this ASAP." Then we have the rule: it fights back. And I'm going to read this out because I I enjoy it so much. You might not have noticed. I enjoy this so much. If the terrain feature is picked to be smashed to rubble, a monstrous rampage, and that monstrous rampage is unsuccessful, uh, the monster that carried out the monstrous rampage will suffer 3d6 mortal wounds. Uh, the smash to rubble monstrous rampage is unsuccessful if it was not 3+. plus. So there is a 1 in 3 chance that you will be taking 3d6 mortal wounds as a monster trying to smash this free terrain piece to rubble. Yeah, that's really cool. So... It kind of, as you said, builds on what I was saying before really well, too, where it's like if you put this really close to your opponent and like, you know what, I'm going to try and get rid of this. There's a one third chance that it just absolutely spikes the monster that tries to step on it, which is in my that would be enough for me not to try and do that, <laughs> to be honest. If I was like, hmm, like taking some chip mortal wounds once in a while or potentially taking 3d6 mortal wounds on a monster, which is usually pretty valuable. And a lot of people aren't running a lot of monsters these days, and you, you might see one, mostly two, in an average list. I'm paying probably a premium. I'm paying 300 to 500 points for that monster. Can I afford to take 3d6 mortal wounds? And what happens if we roll that one in three chance where my Neferata, my Mega Gargant, my Bloodthirster, my whatever monster cops 3d6 mortal wounds i don't know as a tournament player i that's worth the risk i would rather just try to avoid it i might split out my force um or just just accept as you said the chip mortal wounds because it's better than taking potentially 3d6 mortal wounds and losing maybe my general a critical monster it's not worth it yeah yeah absolutely Definitely obviously there's exceptions obviously there's exceptions like i've got a little 100 to 150 point monster i've got like my in my cities of sigma i've got i don't know a war hydra cool i can afford to to take to to go do that but in most cases it's a monster hero that i'd rather just keep on the board yeah the nice thing is though is that even if that is the case you're gonna get one turn of value out of this anyway uh because the monster section has to be at the end of the charge phase whereas this ability procs at the beginning um so like your opponent could actively try and avoid the effects of it for one charge phase and then stomp it, but you're still getting some value in that case because it's causing your opponent to do something different that they otherwise wouldn't do. It's a it's a psychological threat as well. That's what I really that's what that's why I enjoy this the most. Is it's only a thirty three percent chance that you will take three d six mortal wounds, but it's the threat of it that it will put people off, and as soon as they hear that rule, they will play differently. The, the way they traditionally move up the board, they're going to try to split the board and almost do what people do with Gotrek, where they try to avoid and create this 14-inch bubble, just trying to stay away from Gotrek. You might find that, and you might find people giving up particular objectives because they can't afford that unit, especially in the later game, to take those chip mortal wounds because they'll, it'll force battle shock. It will mean that they won't um, have bodies on the objective because they'll be dying from mortals. There'll be all these little flow on effects because of the abilities and the potential of the abilities yeah absolutely 
again, I, I really think this is a good war scroll, um, just because it's cool, like you said, like it's got some just flat out really awesome effects. Um, and it's the same thing as the Gorgers, where it's like, it's not so good that, oh, I'm never taking the Mop Pot anymore. But it's also not so bad that you would never take it. So there's there's a choice to make. All right, so if I'm going to a tournament, I'm, I'm going to the championships. Uh, I'm going to play my Ogres. Am I taking the more pit or am I taking the more pot? I guess pros and cons on the choice. Uh, it really depends on your list. So as I said at the beginning, like if you're running beast call, beast color raiders, like I probably just wouldn't take it. Um, if you're running underguts, I would definitely take it. And if you're running meat fist, which is what I do, um, you got to do your own research, unfortunately, for what specifically works with your list. Like if you have a bunch of units in your list that are not gut busters, then it's going to be pretty painful for you. Uh, but if you don't, then yeah, I would absolutely take it. I also think there's something to be said too about like you said the psychological effect. Um, if you know that you're going to be able to do that a lot, making your opponent, you know, make bad decisions because of this terrain piece, it's definitely a good thing to bring. So yeah, I, I would probably say I'm at like a 60-40 split in favor of bringing the mob pit at the moment, <laughs> which is not super helpful for most, but yeah, I, if I was an Ogre player, which I'm not, I'm being, being completely honest, I'm a Gargan and I'm a Gids player, but if I was a Ogre player, um, I think I would tend to play with the more pit because I like my Gut Busters more than my Beast Claw Raiders. And you mentioned earlier something that I would like to do, and that is the combination with the Iron Guts, maybe even the Iron Blaster, where I might have one or two Iron Blasters at the back. Um, I would have, you know, you know, some, um, some, what are they called? Yeah, uh, iron blasters. You know, having iron blasters, you know, within range, accepted. You know, I can do unleash hell. I can be shooting you off the board, while the other parts of my board in my army is kind of advancing. And then if you get into my backfield, not only you're going to cop a bunch of shooting, but you're also going to be being sacrificed to the more pit. You're taking damage. It's a great defensive piece. It's almost like a little blizzard wizard for you. It's just a natural defensive piece for you. Um, that's why I like them more pit because most games I've played against ogres, I can't say the pit the the pot fills up very often. It's like you use it once. If you're lucky, you get a, a pot refill maybe once, twice at most. But it doesn't seem like it comes into effect very often, other than the initial allocation. Carlson, you might have a different experience, but for me, maybe because I just play around it, I just don't find my ogre opponents get to use it as much as they think they would like to. Yeah, honestly, so the the one-time heal is quite good. And I always assume that I'm only, only ever going to get one. Um, it's really about, so you have some unit, uh, I'm going to say specifically the Stonehorn, every single wound that you have on the Stonehorn is extremely valuable uh, because he's got a three-up save and he's got a five-up ward. So it's actually multiplied into like way more damage that your opponent has to do. So if you could potentially heal it for three at some point in the game, uh, because he's usually in combat and can't heroic recovery, then that's very valuable. Um, another thing that's pretty valuable is, even though it's only a one-inch range, you do get plus one to cast with your wizard from the maw pit or maw pot, sorry. Uh, which sometimes you can like set it up vertically along the board and then have your wizards way back to do like a magical dominance or something and make it just more likely that you actually get it off. So that's usually what I use it for. Um, even though again, it's not amazing. There Glad you picked that up because that that was where I was going. The plus one to cast, unbinding, and dispelling, and with primal magic dice as well, 
that's where I find that you often find you've got just your wizard sitting behind the scenes, just tapping into that plus one, especially if you don't have a native arcane or mystical terrain in your deployment zone. Yeah. Um, the only issue with that, though, is that everything in Ogres wants to be just absolutely sprinting at your opponent. So you're not going to get very much benefit from that. Like, you'll get it the first turn. And you might get it the second turn with like one of your wizards, but that's going to be the end of it, probably. Unless things are going really bad for you and your opponent is actually pushing you back, <laughs> which you've got bigger problems if that's the case. Yeah. So overall, good terrain feature, uh, not an auto-include, not a trash tier. It's a viable option. Yep. If you're playing Beast Claw Raiders, probably keep with the, the more pot, uh, probably. Yeah. I'm sure there's some builds. I'm sure there's some psychological pieces like, hey, I'm going to put the more pit on this side. I'll put my, my force on the other side, you know, stay away from it and then hooking. I'm sure there's plenty of ideas that you could build around it. But your initial take is more pit is better for gut buster. Yeah. Cool. Any other comments? I, I really like it. I, I actually, and it looks easier to paint as well. As much as the more pot has got some really cool, fun, dangly pieces. You could bash this out in like two hours. I'm actually currently painting it. I'm going to show you, even though you didn't ask. Um, cool. But it's been so much fun. I'm just going to merge back into the meat dimension. But just like getting this, these teeth done, it's just been so much fun. Like the fleshy bits and also being able to paint terrain like you normally do. It's just been it's just been awesome. So having a blast painting it. And honestly, like even if you're not sure if you're going to use it in game, just buy it. Like it's a it's an amazing looking piece of terrain. You could use it in games where ogres are not present and it's just going to be, you know, impassable or something like that. Yeah. Any, any painting tips when it comes to the teeth and the, and the middle, I like, by the way, smart ideas starting from the center and working your way out. Thank you. Yeah. Painting tips, not hugely. Um, there's one thing, which is that the mop pit kind of has to be put together like in two halves, which is a bit of a pain. So try not to, get a seam or if you have any like that Vallejo putty that you can kind of fill the gaps with that's going to be really important but yeah otherwise no love it love it one, overall sorry one last thing that I have realized though is that obviously this is huge uh so that's another thing to keep in mind about just like footprint in general like if you have a butcher garrisoning it like a slaughter master um all of a sudden his 12 inch abilities are like from this footprint instead of like his little base uh and then all of a sudden, if you do want to place this aggressively in your opponent's territory, now you have to force them to go into lanes instead of like just running straight at you so you could prevent them from charging you first turn. Yeah, that, that's a really good call out with the no man's land that I was going to say that I forgot to mention is you can split people's castles. If they've castled up, um, you can split them up, especially if they don't fly by putting it in the center or moving it like in the where you think they're going to deploy and they've either got to deploy elsewhere or they're going to have to break up their castles and move around and and then you with your speed um well depending on how you build it but you could start taking advantage of that split force yeah absolutely but sorry right. i interrupted you what, what were you gonna no say? no i wasn't i was gonna segue as just to the next conversation like no you're gonna keep okay. talking if you, if you've got more things to talk about with the more pit talk please anything else no i think that's it i'm sure i'm gonna remember something after and kick myself for it but i think it's we're good to move on it's all right. We, we, we still have a little longer to go. You'll, you'll, you'll come back to it. 
The other, the other part to this book is a new feature called the Armies of Renown. So for, for those who have no experience with Armies of Renown, they are different to Regiments of Renown. Regiments of Renown are a set of units that are wrapped up in a battalion that can be brought in outside of your faction. Just put that to the side. The uh, Armies of Renown is a, I'm going to call it a sub-faction. It's probably the best way to describe it, where basically it is your Ogre Moor tribes as you currently enjoy it today, but you are trading off your, um, your, your allegiance abilities for new abilities, okay? So there'll be some things you're going to gain, some things you're going to lose should you choose to go down an army of renowned. It does have some restrictions, and the restrictions are that it ha your army must be an Ogre Moor tribe, Okay, tick the box. In the Roving Moor, you've also got to use either Gutbuster or Gorger keyword, the end. So, you know, Carson mentioned earlier, you know, I always take a Frost Lord on Stonehorn. You can't. If you take an Army of Renowned, you can't. Um, heroes can only be included if they're not, they are not unique. Uh, so that's going to impact our uh, Underworlds Warband. And uh, all of the units uh, gain the roving more keywords. So I might pause there for a section. A second, what are your thoughts on that level of restriction? Also, that obviously means you can't use Kragnos if you are someone who plays with Craggy. Yeah, I think I think armies of renown are fun. Um, I do think they're a little tricky when it comes to match play, just because you're effectively writing like a new book. Um, you're replacing all of the battle traits, you're replacing all of the battle tactics and grand strat, the artifacts that you can use, the command traits, like you're pretty much rewriting an existing thing. Um, and with that, there can obviously be things that, you know, come out from, or what happens in new books sometimes where it's like, oh crap, this is really unbalanced. Uh, we need to like fix this right away or it just doesn't work out correctly. Or maybe there was something about the original army that, you know, it relies on a battle trait a lot. so. It's, it's just not doing it with the army of renown. So I'm a little conflicted, but I think they're really cool from like a narrative standpoint. Like if I was playing a casual game with a friend, I would absolutely bring Roving Maw and we would do like a cool narrative scenario for sure. Yeah, a lot of people generally have been upset with the armies of renown. There are some examples where they are, like if I was going to go to a tournament and I wanted to do the best I possibly could, would I take an army of renown? And the answer is usually no. Gargans, KO, maybe dragons might be um, some exceptions to those rules, but this is a fun, different way to play ogres. Um, but how do we think about, so how do you feel at restrictions? Like, do you think that you lose too much yet? Um, Cause you mentioned, you know, the, the command trait's gonna change your uh, artifacts, your spells, your prayers, your uh, grand strats, your, you can still pick the stuff from the general's handbook. You can still pick stuff from the unique uh, universal. It's just your ogre book stuff. Um, you're essentially trading to, to use what we will show on this page and the next page, the next page has command trades, artifacts, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Sorry, your question is if I think this specific, like the Roving Maw is too restrictive in what it gives. Yeah, like, like you, you're a gutbuster player. So um, do you, how do you feel around the restrictions around only using gutbuster and gorges in your list? Like, is this super impactful or doesn't really change too much other than the, the Frost Lord? This is very impactful for me. Um, and one of the reasons why is actually, if you look at the battle traits for the Roving Maw, it does not include one key battle trait which is included for Ogre Maw Tribes, which is Trampling Charge. Um, 
that was the like one of the most fun parts of Ogre Maw Traps for me, where like when you actually do make a charge, uh, you roll the unmodified dice roll, and then for each X plus, it could be like six, five, or four, um, you deal a mortal wound to your opponent. And so it's it's kind of like that just scratches that ga gambling itch in your brain where you're like, okay, I made a 12-inch charge, which is insane. Uh, let's see how many mortal wounds I do. And you do like 10 or something crazy like that. So they kind of took something fun out of Ogre of Maw Tribes. And to be honest, competitive too, um, which which is a little tough. Um, cool. And then definitely not being able to include a, a stone horn is pretty big. And then as I mentioned before, you know, the unit that I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, recording Firebelly is not a gut buster for some reason. Like he just magically doesn't have the keyword, uh, so you can't include him in this list, which is sad. But that makes no sense. Why is I know, he not it's, a gut buster? I think lore wise, he's supposed to be like different, like like a traveling like spice salesman in a way, or like it's like it's very yeah, it's technically not part of like gut busters, but. He should be, in my opinion. I, I think I remember, that everything in the book should either be Gutbusters or Beast Claw, and never both. So, I remember back in fantasy. So when, when we moved from fantasy to Sigma in first edition, and maybe well up to second edition, um, when you into the Games Workshop web store, Five Bellies was its own um, sub faction. Like it was just one one model, one click. You're like, oh, maybe they're going to expand Five Bellies, and we're now eight years later, and no. There's no extra fire belly model, so I'm like, okay, just just make it a gut buster. Like I appreciate the lore, just make it a gut buster. I agree. I mean, he has his own spell lore, which is kind of crazy and cool, and I I make use of it for sure. But I still think it should just be a gut buster. All right. So we understand the restrictions and the pros and cons. You can still take it. Uh, you still can take your old stuff. It's not replacing. Just this is just an option for you. So should you make that choice of jumping into a roving more army, let's talk about what you get. First things first is the more pits of GURP. So at the start of each battle round, after determining which players will take the first turn, you must determine the hunger status of the more pit on the battlefield by rolling 2d6. If you include a more pit in your army, add the number of models that have been slain by the head butcher ability during the battle. If the more pit is garrisoned by a head butcher, add one to the roll. So I'm adding 2d6, so doing rolling 2d6, and then adding a bunch of things depending on how many things I've killed and if there's a head butcher. Then after I've generated that result, I get to pick one result from the table. Um, and what else? Uh, Oh, and a unit is vulnerable to more pits if it's on the battlefield within one inch of terrain. Okay, cool. So um, we've done a bunch of rules. We've done a bunch of rolling. We now can generate a number. So I can either get a four and a five, which is subtract one from bravery characteristics that are vulnerable. You have a six to eight, which is roll a dice for each unit that's vulnerable. Uh, on a five plus, it suffers a mortal wound. A nine to eleven, it's famished. Uh, units are vulnerable. Uh, do not uh, cannot issue commands if they're not uh, a hero. Uh, or the ravenous is roll a dice for each unit that is vulnerable to a morpid. On a four plus, it suffers d three mortal wounds. So a unit's vulnerable to a morpid if it's on the battlefield unless it is wholly within one inch of the of a terrain feature that is not the morpid or it can fly. Cool. So. Yeah, it's it's the vulnerability effect is kind of interesting. There's going to be some armies that have like almost all flying, like Night Haunt, for instance, which are just going to be like, cool, I don't care about this whatsoever, <laughs> which is kind of unfortunate. Uh, but 
Yeah, this is a really interesting effect. I, it somewhat makes up for the no trampling charge, where it's like, okay, every battle round we're gonna roll something, and something bad's gonna happen to you. Like it's it's kind of fun. It kind of scratches that gambling itch, like I said before. Um, yeah, it's pretty neat. I also like that you can pick any effect uh, equal to or lower than what you rolled to. So you can say, maybe I don't care if my opponent, you know, issues commands or not. Maybe I only want to deal more damage to them, or maybe I want to impact their bravery because they're gits or something like that. So it's nice that you have the choice instead of maybe randomly getting something that you don't actually want. So there's really, really nice utility from the ability, and obviously you can pick whatever works for you. Let's say you spike the dice roll. Let's say you roll hot or you, you've killed a bunch of things and you've got a really high score because of the head butcher as well. Which of the more pick table effects stand out to you more than others if you were to spike the roll? Yeah. I mean, obviously doing four uh, D3 mortal wounds on a four plus is really good. Uh, if you are facing a really low bravery army like Gits and just like splashing that damage all over their army, that's going to be pretty devastating for them because they can only really save one of them from Battleshock. Um, Famished is also really good. Anytime that you can you know, block the ability to do commands, uh, that's going to be really nice. So I would probably pick one of those two. Um, just because bravery is, it, you know, it's nice, but it's not super, super amazing. Most of the time, if you're targeting one specific unit, it's going to be, you know, they're just going to, uh, inspiring presences, presence it anyway. Uh, but if you really want to flex on your opponent, technically you can pick subdued. <laughs> you could just be like, you know what? Nothing's happening this turn. You're fine. You're safe this turn. And like that's a narrative a, that's game a, or something. That's a psychological. Yeah. Uh, I love it. So I, I would probably, yeah, pick either Famished or Ravenous for sure. Yeah. And the cool thing is. The cool thing is that, you know, an average 2d6 roll is a 7. Yes, numbers don't work statistically. Uh, ask my primal magic dice who like to roll 1s. But it's not hard to get a 9, especially if you've got a head butcher sitting on the maw pit. You've killed at least a un uh, model. It's a model. It's a number of models slain, not units slain. So you start chipping away at those one or two two wound idiots, and you can rack up some of these these numbers pretty quickly. And famished, famished is a good little ability, like you know, being able to shut down all that, all that attack, all that defense. Um, obviously, a hero can issue it, but depending if someone's like taking a unit to to the side, maybe not being babysat by a hero, um, could, that could be a really useful unit. But then you know, ravenous, as you said, like you look at Seraphon, what they do with with their Slan. Um, or croak, like the splash mortals and forcing battle shock on multiple units it can be brutal. Yeah, absolutely. And ravenous isn't even really out of the question a lot of the time. I know if you said you spike it, you would get it, but if you get some good rolls on your head butcher ability and start really stacking up those benefits, uh, benefits you could like you could be splashing these uh, mortal wounds every single turn, uh, like probably turns three and onwards, but still. Yeah, I, I was saying spike more, like thinking about it from the early game where I haven't racked up those points yet. But yeah, yeah. like it's actually not, it's not a hard, uh, it's not its not going to be hard to hit that 12 or at least the 9. But the 9 is, as you mentioned, kind of by round 2 to round 3. It's not not too far-fetched to, to be hitting a 9. Yeah. I might even take uh, Rumbling on the first battle round if I rolled, if I spiked high enough not to roll Ravenous, but 
uh, did get famished, uh, just because sometimes turn one, nothing happens, right? Uh, you're not really going near your opponent, and they're not really going near you, so shutting off their command abilities isn't really devastating. So maybe you just want to get chip mortal wounds across the table. Yeah, start the process, start getting preparing for the combat, but also um, maybe, you know, yeah, start chipping away at those little heroes hit, sitting behind the scenes. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. A couple of other rules. So you've got driven by starvation. So friendly gorgy units that are not wholly within one inch of a terrain feature at the start of your charge phase can attempt to charge even if they ran in the same turn. So good rule. Does it change the value and maybe some of the thoughts that we had earlier around including a gorgeous army if it's in a roving moor? What was the question again? Sorry, I was reading the rules <laughs> as you're asking. No, no, that's that's fine. I was more thinking just around we, we talked heavily already about gorgeous and we talked about the pros and cons of you know taking a, another gut buster unit versus gorgeous. Does if I was running a roving moor army? does this now increase the likelihood or the value of taking a unit of gorges over um, something else? I think so. And I think as we're going to see uh, more in the rules here, you're probably going to want to take more gorges anyway. Um, the Roving Maw feels kind of like a techie subfaction to me, just with the ability to shut off commands in multiple ways if you do bring gorges, which is pretty nice. And then being able to run and charge with your gorges basically means that you can really extend those 12 inch bubbles way further than normal. So yeah, I would definitely bring a lot more gorgeous in this list. It also may mean that you don't put your gorgeous into ambush. You know, if you want yep. to run and then charge, maybe it's actually better to put them on the board. As you mentioned earlier, do surround and destroy, have them already on the table, um, tap the sides of the board, and then they can kind of uh, charge in really quickly. Then you go to the butcher's kitchen, which is another rule that complements gorges, where you can include a unit of gorges as battle line for each butcher in your list. So assuming you're you're going to take this, you are already taking one butcher. Would you take two two butchers and and unlock a second battle line gorger? I would actually, yeah. I I think that that would be uh, interesting. Just because uh, another reason to take multiple butchers is that let's say your head butcher dies, now you can just replace him. You put another butcher into the mob pit, and you get all of the nice effects that you 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 can keep stacking up the benefits of uh, mob pits of Gur and try and really spike high with it instead of just kind of it being over. Yeah, and the more and the butcher does bring some good things. Like it's a wizard, so yep, so it's a wizard, so he can definitely go into Antorian Acolyte's Battalion if you wanted to sacrifice the one drop. You know, it does a bunch of healing. It has the obviously uh, the good voracious more spell as well. So th there is definitely benefits of taking multiple butchers and probably true to it today, especially yep. in the roving more. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. You also have your ravenous bites. I don't think that's changed at all from what you have traditionally in your allegiance ability so you still keep the the hungry or um eating rule yep yeah i think it's the exact same yeah might might makes right is the exact same it's just that they've stopped um they haven't included the monster tech so you can't use beast claw raiders in this so they've just kept it at the ogre stuff yeah i don't think there's any way that you can get anything with a monster keyword in this list um because 
In the regular spell lore for ogres, you can turn Iron Blasters into a monster with a spell if you want to, but because you're forced to use the Roving Maw spell lore, you won't be able to have access to that anymore. So, Bingo. Yeah, you're there. you can't use the traditional spell lore, but you do have a, a, a new spell lore. Uh, the other one is it looks like it's a, uh, a variety or like a, a modified version. So it's, it's called uh, gobbling bites as opposed to gulping bites, unless I've completely just written my own language. Um, at the end of the combat, you roll a dice with it. It's on the two up, it's D3 plus one, which is different to what you've currently got because gulping bite is on a four up, it's D3. Yeah, that's correct. So this is way more reliable and it does more damage on average. There's also one very key difference here, whereas Gulping Bites specifically says Gutbusters Ogres units. This just says Gutbusters units, which means everything in this army is going to be able to do this, which means that those like pesky little knoblars that are just screens most of the times are actually going to be taking massive chunks out of your opponent uh, on a 2 plus even. Uh, glad you mentioned that because uh, one of the questions was actually more of a statement from Discord uh, from Pask saying, Noblars get the bite. Not a question, but needs to be mentioned. So really good point. In a traditional list, your Noblars wouldn't get those uh, gulping bites you, in in the more. But you can't take... You know, the, yeah, no, Noblars are uh, gut busters. So you, can, yep. you, you can have... Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, some reason, for some reason, I'm thinking gut buster is just ogre. No, it's yeah. completely different. Those tiny little goblins, those are definitely gut busters. But the firebelly, no, absolutely not. Not a gut buster. So the gulping bite in your traditional list, it's keyword locked to gut buster ogre, which is why the noblars can't take it. But because this is purely, uh, yeah, this is purely um, gut buster, noblars have gut buster keyword, thus allowing them to be able to bite. Yeah, I really hope that they don't FAQ this away. Uh, I really hope it wasn't a mistake just because uh, I, I just find it like thematically hilarious that these tiny goblins are just like ravenously hungry and just like at like piranhas just swarming these uh, these enemies. Look, if Games Workshop change that, I will lead the charge when it comes to the to to the um, the change.org petition. Like let's 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 keep it as it is. Let them have it, folks. Just let them have it. So page one of the Roving Moor, how are you feeling so far as an ogre player? Excited, curious, restricted? Give, give me your thoughts so far. Um, I There's a very good chance that I wouldn't run this in a tournament. Um, you said at the beginning, that's kind of the case for most of the armies of right now, and like, you don't really want to be bringing them. But it's not so bad that you can't run it in a fun game against your, your friend or something like that. And I'm not even saying like both of you agree to have like easy, soft lists. Like This does have some play. Uh, there's some interesting pieces to it, and it's not so restrictive in the units that you have available to you that it just doesn't work, uh, because you do have access to all Gutbusters, which is a huge portion of the Ogre book. So, yeah, I definitely think it's really cool, um, really thematic too, which is fun. When you take this to a tournament, you absolutely can, folks, by the way. We're not saying not to take it, but if your goal was to go 5-0, and 4-1, and one, and just do the absolute best, I don't think that this has the tools to allow you. More importantly, I think it restricts you with some of the tools that would help you unlock the most potential of ogres. That's that's what we're saying here. So if you want to run this and you want to take it to your next tournament, do it. You do you. But if you want to do the best, you probably may be better off just taking the more pit and or gorges in a traditional build list. Yeah. Well, I would agree with that. 
let's see if he continues to agree with that um, when we go to the second page because we do have command traits, we do have enhancements, and we do have a whole bunch of other things. So as we've mentioned, you do sacrifice your existing ones. So um, what do you like, for, for example, like you'll, like you, you'll, you will sacrifice your law of gut magic. You will, um, obviously there's no law of the sun eater because you can't bring in a fire belly. So let's talk command traits. So your command trait is one option, which is called the prime gut server. So this general knows all of the spells from the lore of the great Moor, in addition to other spells they know. So do you like it? Or would you take something like, um, I don't know, Shaman of the Chilled Lands or even, you know, something from the, you know, the universal rules like uh, Master of Magic? I think those are competitors for sure. Um, the nice thing is that if you take Prime Gut Server, you can still take one of the lower Primal Frost, and then you're probably not going to be taking uh, Rupture. So you're basically choosing. I could I could have all of the um, uh, lore of the Great Maw, and Warfrost, or all of it and uh, uh, Blizzard, which is pretty good. Like it's that's a pretty reasonable trade-off. Um, I guess one reason not to have Shaman of the Chilled Lands is that you're really only getting one additional spell. And then you get to choose one of these. So I think it's yeah, it's a pretty good command trait. Maybe you want to take Master of Magic, but even then, like with the uh, existence of Primal Dice being what they are, like Master of Magic isn't amazing, um, just because as soon as you re-roll it, you can't use Primal Dice on that roll, which is a little unfortunate. So while we're talking spells, so interesting, decent command trait. Uh, it probably becomes a bit more powerful when we actually look at the spells. So there are three spells from the Roving Moor Butcher spell law. Uh, as I mentioned, you are sacrificing the law of gut magic. So no blood feast, no blubber guts stench, no greasy deluge, no molten entrails. Off the menu, can't take it in a Roving Moor list. The spells you do get is you get more meat. So it's a casting value of six and a range of 18. If successfully cast, pick one terrain feature within range and visible to the caster. For the rest of the battle, units on or within one inch of the terrain feature are vulnerable to more pits. Thoughts? This one's pretty interesting. Um, for the rest of the battle is a really rare thing to see for a spell. So to just permanently change something, regardless of if that butcher dies, is really cool. I think if I'm not mistaken, this actually makes it so that flying units can be vulnerable to maw pits now if they're within one inch of that terrain feature or wholly within. Oh no, it just says within. Um, so it basically makes a no-go zone for uh, an army that would you know, normally not be vulnerable to the maw pit at all. So like Night Haunt all of a sudden can't go near this massive terrain feature in the center if you cast it on that. So that's pretty nice. It's a good piece of utility. And by the way, we are recording pre-FAQ here. So if uh, that does get clarified and it does say that flying still does avoid being vulnerable, then that's been clarified. We, we're, we're using what we know as of today's. But really good point. That's a really good point to be able to tap into those units either should your head butcher die and you've only got one butcher in your list or you have a flying unit that you want to make vulnerable, uh, this could be a great way to, to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next spell is uh, is it Retcher? So it's a spell that has a casting value of seven. If successfully cast until your next hero phase, improve the Ren characteristic of melee weapons used by the caster by two. You're probably not ever going to use this. Um, maybe if you want to have some fun, like uh, the Slaughtermaster is a butcher and he has a 2d6 attacks profile, so that could be scary. 
all of a sudden that's 2d6 attacks, uh, threes, threes, rend three, one damage. Um, so you could use that to kind of like shave some wounds off something that has a really good save, but there's a lot of better options that you would do before you reach this point. Because it's butcher only. So you improve the butcher's characteristic of either the tenderizer or the cleaver. Like it's, that's, that's all you're doing. Like you, you can't put it onto another unit. It's right. But the slaughtermaster has the butcher keyword. Ah, oh, yes. Sorry. Of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at the butcher keyword right now going, okay. Yeah. I mean, even then, like the tenderizer, or the cleaver, I think one of them is Ren two already. Yeah. Um, one's Ren two. One is Ren two. So then you could be Ren four if you want to, which is pretty, pretty nice, but I think it's still just two attacks or, or something. Right. I, 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 never, I always bring the tenderizer because that's what I modeled it with, and it doesn't really matter a whole lot. So, yeah, tenderizer is three attacks. Cleaver yeah. is three attacks. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's it's not terrible, but I, I just think there's better options before you would get to that point. Like you really don't want your butchers in combat most of the time. They're, they're not very tough. <laughs> so what you're thinking about is when you use Retcha, you're thinking about it on the stump stump blades because yep. it's got that two d six potential. I mean, uh, on any of the butchers, like their attacks profiles aren't terrible, so you could certainly use them. Uh, but yeah, I, I, again, like it, you're probably not using this spell most of the time. No, like I, when I first read it, I was I was underwhelmed. Now, if I could put it onto a unit of um, iron guts or some type of gluttons or some other, if I could project it onto a different unit, like it's a different version of Horfrost. I think I'm much more excited, but the fact that I need to put it onto a butcher or slaughtermaster, that seems less appealing to me. A nice get out of jail kind of like if I find myself in a situation, but one that I don't want to build around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you could project this to other units, that would be insane. Uh, I would, I would take it every single time, <laughs> just because rend four iron guts or rend three gluttons would be nuts. Unless you play I play unless you play against Nighthaunt. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Nighthaunt meta stonks rising. Yeah. The last one is Awful Bringer. So this is <laughs> strap in, folks. It's story time with Coach here. It's a spell that has a casting value of six and a range of twelve. If successfully cast, pick one enemy unit within range and visible to the caster. Your opponent must make a move of, of up to six inches with that unit. All of the models in that unit must finish that move as close as possible to the caster and can finish that move within three inches of the caster. If it is impossible for that unit to make a move, it suffers D3 mortal wounds instead. After that unit has moved, if that unit is within three inches of the caster and that caster is, is within six inches of the maw pit in your army, you can immediately use the maw pit head butcher ability, but you must pick that enemy unit to be the target. Yeah, this is an interesting spell. Um, there's a couple of very key wording things to note here. Uh, number one is that it says that you can move within three inches of the caster. You still can't move within three inches of other friendly units as the spell has worded. So there has to be like a 100% clear path between, uh, or like an accessible path between the caster and whoever it's being casted onto. Another unfortunate thing is that it's 12 inch range, which is not amazing like when you think of other pull things i think corn has a 16 inch range and then you can push yourself before actually doing that with that uh with that prayer so they get a little bit more value for for a very similar effect um yeah i like this is a nice tool to have but i don't think that it would be my first choice to cast most of the time 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's neat nonetheless, because it, it, anything that you can do to bring your opponent closer to you is nice, but for them already to be within 12 inches uh, of a caster uh, as well is going to be like, it's, it's going to be tough to do. I think this is a great spell if you have Prime Gut Server because you know the spell law, so that you yep. will use this often if you have that. But if I was building a list and I didn't know the entire spell law, Awful Bringer is not my first choice. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's yeah, a nice tool to have in your back pocket, but I don't know that I would only bring this for a Butcher, uh, like it's like their only spell that they know. Let's rank them. Let's assume we're not taking Prime Gut Server. Where do, what do we rank them as? One, two, three. Top pick is... I would probably say... Yeah, it depends on your opponent. But I would say, in general, probably Awfulbringer is actually the best out of the three. Um, then I would say Maw Meat, and then I would say Retro after that. And the reason why I say that is because with Maw Meat, you're going to go against opponents sometimes where everything's vulnerable to the Maw Pit anyway, so that spell effectively doesn't matter. Uh, whereas with Awfulbringer, it could potentially be useful against any army. Uh, if they get close enough. Depending on how they may FAQ or clarify the interaction with flying, I probably would tend to go more meat if it is favorable FAQ kind of ruling. If it's unfavorable, then yeah, Awful Bringer for me would be number one. Retcher, maybe, maybe, and with the Slaughtermaster, I think definitely. And, you know, finest hour to get that wound on a two plus. Uh, you know, Ren three. If you do well on the on the two D six attack roll, it could be could be a very powerful little unit uh, at, at the right time. But it, it's situational. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, so that's a spell lord done, and that's our command traits done. Let's look at our other things. So you do have a uh, one artifact. So unfortunately all of your plunders of the gut the gut hold are no longer available so leave your splatter cleaver and your gruesome trophy rack at home if you play the roving more but you will get the flask of congealed more juices once per battle at the start of the hero phase you can pick one more pit in your army that is within nine inches of the bearer and that has the effect and that has been affected by a rule that says that you cannot use the scenery rule on its war scroll, AKA smash to rubble. Roll the dice. On a two plus, that more pit is no longer affected by that rule and you can use the scenery rule on the war scroll once more. So basically we bring back the, the more pit from the dead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think this is a really cool ability. The only thing that I don't like about it, and this is kind of prevalent on the other rules in, and Warhammer as well, is a it's a once per game ability on a dice roll. So once per game, something might not happen, <laughs> which is kind of unfortunate. Um, you know, I, I see it all the time with like Sylvan F players, like bringing in some Dryads. They're like, guess how many times I rolled a one in this tournament? <laughs> it's five, like it can happen. And when you take an artifact and get burned like that, it's just a, a feel bad moment. So mm -hmm. that's my only gripe with it. But what I like about it is that the Maw Pit specifically has something against, like, if something stomps it and fails, then it deals a bunch of damage to it. But even if it succeeds, you're like, it's probably coming back, uh, and you're going to have to do this again. So it's even more reason for your opponent to to really struggle with the idea of stomping your terrain. And, and they might just go, you know what? Because in people's mind, they think of best. It's funny, actually, you mentioned that, because I was literally yesterday at an RTT, and we were having this exact conversation about once per battle, two up rolls and how often it fails. It just happens to always happen. 
but to your point, like when we're when we're playing and we're talking through our lists and our deployments and our strategy, you're like, what's your artifact choice? Like, oh, I could bring it back from the dead once per battle on a two plus. Everyone just thinks automatic succeed. Then I'm not going to risk my monster being, you know, three d six mortal wound because they think worst case scenario. So again, it might just reinforce that people will completely ignore it, and you just chip away, use your more pit abilities through the uh, reg armies of renowned. Um, and by the way, you obviously can't use this artifact in a another version of this list. Like you've you've got to use it in only roving more. Yeah. Would you take this over a traditional uh, like? universal artifact if you were building a, a roving more i think so yeah um especially because this ghb doesn't give you access to like custom artifacts it's the nullstone adornments instead um one argument could be made about if you bring a tyrant to this list which is a gut buster you could put arcane tome on him which could be pretty useful but that relies on you bringing a tyrant in the first place um otherwise i don't, I don't see any like better options so yeah i, I would probably bring this in a roving mall list then there is, and I, I would too, actually. I think the the this sub-faction is so built around the more pit that you want to keep it on the board. So, yeah, I definitely would, would use it, um, hands down. There is one grand strategy and three battle tactics. The grand strategy for a roving more army is still not... Uh, Satiated? Sorry, I'm I'm trying to read it very smallly on my screen. <laughs> thank thank you. Like I'm trying to read. I should just read it on my big screen. I've actually got it on my small screen. Anyway, when the battle ends, you complete the grand strategy. If six or more enemy models were slain by a more pit head butcher ability. Yeah. Uh, so as we kind of mentioned before, when looking at the mop pit war scroll, head butcher is kind of like hit or miss. If you go against an army that doesn't have anything of a wounds characteristic of less than three. This is just an auto fail grand strat, unfortunately, just because head butcher will never go off. Um, and then even when you are going into uh, one, like a, 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 like an army that has a lot of one wound units or something, you might think like head butcher most of the time is going to be killing like one unit, you know, maybe three if you're really really lucky. So it could be hard to get this off, especially because your butcher could die by the end of the battle. Um, however, awful bringer does interact with this pretty well because if you're uh if, if you bring someone within a certain range of the mop pit then it does trigger their head butcher ability again which is pretty nice uh but that's pretty situational so i probably wouldn't run this grand strat um just because you almost know that you're going to have butchers in your list in the first place so you might as well bring just uh spell casting savant or something uh with uh with the current ghp yeah, and I think, you, as you mentioned, there's just a couple of armies where this is just unachievable. You, you cannot, like, for example, if I played my sons against you, how do you do this? Like, how do you score your grand strategy against sons? Like, it's literally unachievable. Yeah. And that's just one That's just one of uh, a couple of examples. You, you referred to OBR before. Um, you know, like, what happens in Flesh Eater Courts drops and everyone's running flayers and horrors, you know, not ghouls. Like, there's, there's a bunch of four-wound idiots. Or if you go against another ogre player, where most of their stuff is going to have four or five wounds, and they might have noblars, but the noblars probably won't be very close to you. So, or, or, or your opponent just near, yeah, yeah stays, stays out of range. So, okay, cool. You just deny your grand strategy, you sacrifice, and move away the noblars. Yeah. All right. So we a bit of a miss there with the grand strat. Yeah, I I'm it's too restrictive. 
The other ones are your battle tactics. So um, that was just a morsel. You complete the tactic if any enemy models were slain by the more pit head butcher ability this turn. This one's uh, decent. You could say that uh, there's a pretty okay chance that you would get this if a unit is one wound and uh, also like within 12 inches of the mob pit, because then you could also. Sorry, dog's coming back. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, hey, doggo. Got the dog. Yeah. Um, so, so if you have an enemy unit that's got like uh, a one wound characteristic, is within 12 inches of the mob pit then all of a sudden you have two chances at actually satisfying this, which is pretty nice if you pull them close enough to the mop pit. Um, so I would bring it then, but most of the time it's kind of risky because even if you are targeting a unit that has one wound, um, you still have to roll a three up in order to kill a, a unit in it because it has to be more than double, right? Yeah, yeah. So a battle mm. tactic on a three up is not great. <laughs> like there are a lot of other battle tactics that are, like you should be pretty sure that you're going to be able to do do them if you take a battle tactic. It's not auto. It's not. It's not auto achieve, but in the situation, you, you might find it's easier than you know landing a charge and hoping they don't roll high on a, on a, a redeploy and like all these other things. So, it's not auto, but it's definitely achievable. But dice roll is risky. Yeah. Uh, slavering ambush. You complete the tactic if a friendly gorgeous unit was set up on the battlefield using the hunter's uh, ambush hunter ability this turn and made a charge move this turn. So there's no bonus to charge if I remember correctly. It's just a flat dice roll. Yeah. So this is um, again, it's achievable, especially like the more units of gorgeous that you bring, the more of a chance that you have to actually achieve it, and then you can reroll one of them. So a whole bunch of rerolls on a nine-inch charge essentially could make it fairly achievable, but I would say it's, you know, not great. Uh, you could take it in a pinch, I guess, <laughs> but I, yeah, most of the time I'd be trying not to do this. Nine-inch charge is harder to hit than a three-up. I tell you that much. So yep. if you don't, if you don't like, if you don't like the idea of uh, that's just a morsel, you won't like the ambush one because you will. I mean, at least the gorgeous can. Um, issue their own command, which is really good. So um, it's still a, a re-roll charge is, is 50%. It's like a coin flip, basically. Yeah. So. But if you if you have multiple units, then again, if, like if, let's say you have like three or four packs of Gorders dropping down, maybe not a bad idea, right? Like you could, you could maybe make the argument that this is a pretty easily achievable tactic, but even then dice could still mess with you. Good call out. So if you took one unit of Gorges, it's it's a risky play. If you took two units of gorges and you ambush them both in the same turn, then the likelihood probably significantly increases. But you are now paying 440 to pull off this battle tactic. Is it worth it? Yeah. I'll leave that. I'll leave that up for you to all to decide. The last battle tactic is we eat them all, eated them all. And you pick one objective controlled by your opponent. You complete this tactic if you, that, you control that objective at the end of this turn and there are no enemy models contesting it. I think this one's the gimme where they're like, okay, the other two are a little bit too hard to achieve or like not super great in certain situations. So, you know, this is a, this is a pretty standard, like just wipe someone off on objective essentially. So yeah, this one's doable for sure situational obviously you've got to pick the right unit but it's yeah. it's what it's what you want to do anyway right you want to go in you want to kill things you want to take people off objectives 
Yeah, and a lot of other armies that have similar battle tactics to this um, have to have certain types of unit on the objective. Like I know the new cities of Sigmar, that's going to be the case. Uh, Seraphon has one that's like that with skinks. Um, so it's nice that there are no restrictions whatsoever. It's like you can put whatever you want on the objective to force your opponent off of it as long as you take it. I can see a world where um, we're fighting and your opponent has one model on an objective, right? You're forced to battle shock and they're within 12 inches of the um, of the, the gorges and you're going for that casino roll. Like if I hit that five up, you can't issue inspiring presence and that thing runs away. Um, it, it, I like this rule a lot. And um, yeah, it's it, it, easy to achieve, but not auto include. It's not auto. It just yeah. depends on the situation. Yeah, exactly. So we're at the end of the roving moor, and we're we're going to the other um, the other rules for the ogres in general. But now that we've kind of explored this, how are you feeling about the roving moor? Have we are we going to not run meat fist, and we're going to now use the roving moor? Have we convinced ourselves this is still a fun but not the most competitive build? Like, where are you at now? Now that we've explored everything. Yeah, I. So I wouldn't take this if I was attempting to go for a five-zero at a tournament. If I, I, I don't think that it is truly the most competitive that ogres can be, unfortunately. Um, but it's still not untakeable. Like if I was going to a charity event, or if I just wanted to have fun, or if I just wanted to play with a, a friend and have a fun game with them, like I would definitely consider taking this. The dog uh, seems to agree. Thank you. Yeah. You, you tell him. You tell him. Um, yeah, uh, my my general feel is uh, it is fun, it is interesting. It's not the most competitive optimum build. It is restrictive, and and for me, if I was running ogres, I think I still would like the, the frost lord on stonehorn. Um, I do like, as you mentioned, the fire belly. There's some other units that I I think maybe it's maybe too restrictive. If the fire belly could be included, maybe it's a bit easier, but. Um, overall, it's fun. It's some interesting, and if you are an experienced ogre player, this might just actually just be a completely different way to play your army, and it actually just might bring some some fresh life to an old book. Yeah, and that's something that ogres already has in general, which is multiple different playstyles for people that want to play in different ways, and this gives you another one. So I'm really happy that that's the case. You know, some armies really don't have that luxury. It's like you kind of have to bring this, or else it's just not competitive whatsoever. So I'm happy to be in that spot. Yeah, and I think the more pit does bring a different dimension as well. So even if you don't choose the roving more, you can just put a, a, a more pit into your list and see how that, as opposed to the more pot, will change the, the way you run your army and you even build your army. Absolutely. Cool, 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 cool. Well, let's, given that we've talked more pits and more pots and gorges and roving moors, Let's maybe do like a rapid fire, go through the um, allegiance abilities and how we're thinking, mean, not completely rapid fire, but like we'd have to go through every single rule we we'll here forever. As a ogre player, roving more or not, like that's just like just completely general handbook this now. How are you thinking about this as you head to your next major tournament? Uh, are there particular rules that you mentioned? For example, the trampling charge you thought was a massive miss by not being in the roving moor. Um, you talked a little earlier about the, um, the the stone horn and the ability of the, the unstoppable charge and making sure we've got one of those in our list where possible. 
are there particular rules that you build around you enjoy that are super valuable or yeah tell, tell me more yeah i mean both of those things that you just mentioned i build around a lot um trampling charge is huge there's going to be some armies that are going to be really tough to crack save wise so just charging them to death is going to be really big uh one that comes to mind is uh i can't remember which sub faction but for lumineth realm launch they can bring the cows where they basically ignore rend one and two which is pretty or they subtract the rend by two now um and that's pretty devastating for ogres so now you can just kind of like punch them to death essentially with trampling charge which is great um whenever i build a list i generally try to make it so that my opponent never feels safe and the stone horn is a really big piece of that because it can move 14 inches charge and then fly over a bunch of stuff uh so not having access to that is really big um and then the general spell lore for ogres is actually very useful utility wise too like there will be some times where i feel like i can't muzzle my opponent off an objective but i turn the iron blaster into a monster and then just tow it onto the objective and now it counts as 10 so that they can't take it away from me which is pretty big so just a lot of the general utility aspects of ogres that are in the main book but not included in the roving maw are, are probably the difference there yeah you've got some really good rules but i don't think rules that really shape your list right you know might might makes right is a, a great rule and whether you're building beast claw raiders or gut busters you know you, you you're going to be having more models contesting objectives so um that doesn't change too much. Uh, your ravenous bite, you know, whether you're in combat or advancing into combat, that's super helpful. Trampling charge is what you want to do anyway. You want to charge into combat where possible, and you get to do mortal wounds uh, for doing so. The well, the uh, the grasp of the Everwinter is fun, but more of a late game thing, really. Like it doesn't it doesn't come into play too often. There are some times where I'll leap the Stonehorn directly into the center of my opponent, and then he'll have like Finest Hour, uh, Mystic Shield, just be like an, an unkillable block. And then if you have multiple enemies in range of him, when Grasp of the Everwinter happens, like chances are he's going to deal damage to something. Um, I don't really factor that in most of the time, but it's a nice to have for sure. No, you're not building a strategy around making the most of Grasp of the Everwinter, but having it is is better than not having it. We, we talked a little bit about unstoppable charge and why probably everyone should have a stone horn if possible. Uh, it's just a fantastic uh, being able to charge and, you know, you don't want to get tied up in a screen of idiots because you want to get into that juicy center. You want to go fight something that you really want to fight and, and, and blocks of 10 wound idiots are just like, they're just annoying. You want to get into the good stuff obviously stop unstoppable charge helps you get into that to to kill key, key heroes to remove those wizards to destroy those shrines and those buff pieces to get into maybe the elite units before they get into you but what about the chill of the everwinter are you thinking about thunder tusks as well and the ability to strike last as a monstrous rampage or is it just if your list happens to have one yay me uh definitely the latter and also i i normally don't make you know absolute statements like this but you should almost never bring a thunder tusk in my opinion they're not they're not good <laughs> the uh the war scroll that they've been given just like it it just kind of doesn't quite do enough in any direction um so this isn't even something i've really thought about this monstrous action it's funny because the the thunder tusk really used to be heavily um taken because of the priest ability 
Yep. Yeah, everyone wanted the priest on Thunder Tusk, but now you can make a Stonehorn a priest. Uh, often I see people taking Thunder Tusks only when they don't have the points for another Stonehorn. And, you know, and, and like changing their list too much would just neuter what they were doing. So they'll take the Frost Lords, sorry, they'll take the Stone, uh, the Thunder Tusk support piece as opposed to trying to force in another Stonehorn Priest. Yeah, exactly. Um, but even then, I feel like there's probably other options. Like maybe you would be able to take an Icebrow Hunter and do the Deep Strike onto points in the backfield or something like that. Like, I. I don't know. I, I don't see like a very good use case for Thunder Tusks most of the time, especially when they aren't a hero and they can't be a priest. If you just have like the Thunder Tusk Beast Riders, then it's even worse, right? Because then you don't get access to that very valuable keyword. Hmm. I mean, obviously the uh, the shooting attack from the Thunder Tusk can be can be quite helpful, but even the changes to Lookout Sirs probably hurt that as well. Given that you can hide those little heroes, because that was like why you take it. You wanted to snipe those little heroes. Um, and some people might take two Thunder Tusks so, yeah, to kind of take them out. But now it's a lot harder. The value is definitely diminished more. There is one meme list that I want to bring up, which is very funny, uh, is that if you can just pack as many Thunder Tusks as you possibly can into a list, um, any of the big beasts can take a Blood Vulture, um, which is basically like you pick a unit on the battlefield and on a two up, it just takes a Mortal Wound. So if you have like seven of those in your list, you're like, okay, that's support hero in the back. <laughs> you're seven D six. Uh, every two up is a mortal wound to him. So you're just like picking them off one by one, which is pretty funny. But unfortunately, it doesn't really do anything past that. Uh, but I do love it. <laughs> just a big th bunch of snowballs uh, in your winter school holiday, I don't yep. know, snow day. What about the that's tribes? So we talked, we talked tri. Uh, we, we haven't really talked tribes just yet. But where do you stand in regards to like the most competitive builds right now? Um, either side, you know, the the, um, the beast claws or the gut the gut busters. Yeah. So the biggest ones that you're going to see are going to be meat fist, under guts, and boulderhead. Uh, which isn't to say that the other ones are useless. It's just you don't see them as much, and in my opinion, there isn't as much competitive play with them. Uh, meat fist is really good just because more mortal wounds is great. Uh, if you run a whole bunch of minimum sized unit gut busters, then you can be averaging like 15, 20 mortal wounds on a really good charge phase, uh, which is crazy. Uh, Underguts can be nice because, you know, giving extra Ren to uh, an Iron Blaster is going to be super good. Your Lead Belchers too, like being able to reach something at a threat range of 39 inches with the Iron Blaster at Ren 3 is pretty awesome. Like you could just absolutely drop stuff off the board. Uh, and depending on your matchup, it could be devastating. Uh, now, the only issue with Underguts is that with any shooting castle-ish list, it's it's a skew list, right? If you go against the wrong thing, then you know it's kind of a it's a rough day for you. Uh, and then boulderhead is what you're going to see a lot when people run monster trucks, just because it's more wounds uh, and you can have uh, more mount traits if you want to as well. So just tougher, bigger monsters with more cool stuff on them, easy choice. Yeah, you definitely want the extra. If you're running a Beast Claw Raider, you definitely still want the extra uh, mount traits and the extra wounds. Like, it's just a perfect... It's the Hammers of Sigma for Ogres. Like, it's just good. Um, I have played against a couple of Winter Bite lists, and they, they were fine. Um, they were fine, but if you're, if you're not, not a shooting army or someone that's not tied into shooting, um, it's a little bit 
less useful. Although with, you know, new cities, with Fusiliers, you might find that more people might be taking more shooting. So you might see the resurgence of bow snakes. You might start seeing sentinels coming hitting the table. You've obviously still got your bliss barb archers, you know, running right in Slanesh. So maybe if, maybe this is like an RTT type, you know, take it to your one day. Uh, but I don't mind winter bite if, if shooting continues to rise. Yeah, absolutely. Um... In general, I try to stay away from abilities that are like, it's useful if I go against this specific thing, but if I don't, then it's just absolutely useless. That's that's a bit of a disappointment sometimes, but definitely if we see cities start to dominate the meta, then Winterbite could see an uptick for sure. Um, yeah. And then for the other ones that I that I didn't talk about as much, Blood Gullet, like an extra spell can be pretty nice, but what issue is that our... Our butchers are pretty, in my opinion, overcosted. Like 140 points for a one-cast wizard is a little bit, a little bit much, especially when the spell lore that we have access to isn't super, super great. So, having an entire subfaction just around giving you one extra cast for each of those wizards feels like a little bit of like a tax almost that you have to pay. It's like now I feel obligated to bring more butchers, which costs a lot of points. So it's not going to be great. And then with Thunderbellies, uh, Mornfang is just. Just not quite there, in my opinion. <laughs> they're like they're pretty awkward to move around, uh, and they just don't quite deal the same damage output as uh, like monster trucks or regular gutbusters. I partially disagree with you on the cost of butchers. Like it might go down ten points. The, the reason for it is like my wizards. Like when I play cities, my wizards are what one ten, one twenty. I think one ten, one twenty. Stormcast wizards are like one twenty. And I, yeah, you know that Stormcast have better armor save. But you've got more wounds, and each time you cast a spell on a two-up, you heal a wound. Now, yes, you can take a mortal wound on a roll of a one, but your wizards are way more survivable than mine. So that's, that's probably true. that's probably my that's my counter argument. But could could it be one thirty? Yeah, yeah. I'm not 100% settled on one forty, but it could go ten points either way. Yeah, those are totally fair arguments. Um, the I guess another thing as well is that butchers also have diminishing returns, just like Stonehorns, where it's like you usually have one uh, spell that you want to get off that turn that's actually like valuable to you. And then after that, everything else is kind of like, maybe it's going to be useful, maybe not. So having multiple butchers with multiple casts isn't you know, super amazing in the first place, because you've got like a couple of utility spells at most. No, that's two. That's 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 approaching three hundred points for two butchers slash yeah. slaughtermasters, right? So all of a sudden, um, that is you know when you start looking at three hundred points, that is so many things. Yep. Anything else you'd say on the more tribes? I I probably tend to agree with you. Um, again, like, it depends on how the meta goes, and you know what does Feck and what does Dawnbringers four and five and six and eight and eleven. What are, what are they all doing and, and what boosts and how does a meta shift and, you know, December is rolling around quickly and December, January, we might see a six-month Age of Sigma rebalance. So who knows what that looks like? Um, does Blizzard change? And, and how, like, there's so many things that could happen that would shift maybe the opinions, but I generally agree, you know, under guts, meet fist, bold ahead, probably the three strongest. Yeah, and then probably in order of what you're most likely to see at a tournament, Boulderhead is going to be at the top, Meat Fist after that, and then Underguts after that. Probably There's like a sharp fall off after Meat Fist, I would say. Yeah, but 12 months ago. Monster... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, 12 months ago, it was definitely, it was just nothing but Underguts. Thanks, Tom Guan. Um, <laughs> for, for, for Iron Blasters, all the Noblars, 
uh, some crazy shenanigans, but that kind of has definitely dropped off. I wouldn't be surprised to see it rise again um, with the castles. I would not surprise me at all. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Uh, or at least a variant of what that Underguts list was bringing. So you got your command traits available to you. Um, do you have any favorites, uh, both from the, well, I mean, from all of them, really? Like if you're building a, uh, an army right now, what, what are your favorite command traits? Yeah, I I, really, I personally use Gastromancer uh, for my command trait right now, just because there is no useless ogre spell. There's always a use case for each of the uh, spells in the uh, gut magic lore. Um, so it's nice to be able to pick and choose rather than kind of locking in one uh, and hoping that you run into the right stuff with it. Uh, so I like having that little, like, you know, Swiss Army knife of a, a command trait there. Reluctant Rabble Rouser is really funny, um, and I like it a lot just because if you are running an Underguts list um, and you have, like, 60 Noblars just, like, surrounding all of your very valuable cannons, and all of a sudden they just can't Battleshock, that's really difficult for your opponent to deal with. And then getting anywhere near the Noblars in the first place is really dangerous for them because of the nature of their ability of you know, dealing chip mortal wounds whenever you finish a move within six inches. So that's fun. Um, if you are bringing a tyrant and he is your general killer reputation, is really nice to have. Um, you know, you can make him pretty unkillable. Like, you can give him a three-up save and a five-up ward just like the Stonehorn, and all of a sudden that's, you know, eight wounds on those characteristics that you have to deal with too, so that's fun. So those three would probably be the biggest. Uh, and then my personal favorite is Gastromancer. Um, for Peace Cloud Raiders, Voice of the Avalanche is really good. Um, you basically get like one free command point once per game, and then also no restriction on like where you can actually issue commands to, which is super nice. So I would that's that's what I would probably bring. And then Touched by the Everwinter is also really nice to give like a Stonehorn the Priest keyword like you were saying earlier. Um, so those are the two big ones that you would definitely see. But then I as far see as... Go ahead, sir. I was, I was just going to... Don't call me sir. <laughs> I said, sorry. I said, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> not sorry. He said, sir. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> sorry, don't, sir. Don't please, put, please. Yeah. Don't, don't put that pressure on me. I've always said to people, like, people harass me constantly about becoming an ogre player. And I'm like, there are two things stopping me. One, the static pose of a stonehorn. Like, if it was multi-pose, I could definitely get into it. The other one is if I ever built an ogre army, it would be heavily focused around man eaters. There's something about man eaters that I absolutely love. And honestly, a day where ex mercenary becomes like a great, a great command trait, but I just can't build around man eaters. They're fun. They're interesting, but I just can't build around them. And that's currently stopping me from, from jumping into the ogre, the ogre pool. I feel the exact same way, but the reason why I can't get into man eaters is because their resin models only and like it's <laughs> you have to buy like these very specific kits so if they did like a revamp of the man eaters kit uh i'd be all over that and i'd be trying to make a list work for sure but i no, did I actually buy that many <laughs> i did actually think at one point that man eaters might get re redone because like you watch the gw web store and the man eaters were slowly being taken off and i'm like this must be a sign they're going to relaunch them plastic kit put it in one of those FOMO boxes and and give me a bunch of options, multi-kit. No, nah, didn't happen. So that's why I'm not an ogre player. Yep. It'll happen someday, though. And you will be. You will join give me, us. Give me my man-eaters. <laughs> the dog agrees. The dog's like, yes, give me man-eaters. Yeah, sure. um, and you were going to talk about the Entorian Locuses. If you were going to pick um, from that particular command trait, is it Shaman? Yeah, I would do Shaman of the Chilled Lands. And that is what I ran for the first couple tournaments I did of this GHB. Um, 
just because it's nice to have access to Blizzard. Uh, if you do just want to pick one ogre spell up as one that you know is the only one that you want to cast, then having access to both both Hoarfrost and uh, Blizzard is super nice. So that's what I would go yeah. with. I was toying with Eater of Magic for a little bit, just because it's, again, it's funny like <laughs> to be able to potentially just like eat one of your opponent's spells, especially because it stacks pretty nicely with um, uh, Optimal Focus, where you get a second unbind with that caster. Uh, so you have two chances of doing that as well. But it's just too unlikely to happen for it to be like viable, in my opinion. Plus, you know, you got the more pot, so you get the plus one to unbind as well, your primal dice. You could actually build into it. If you do Entorian Acolytes with Eater of Magic, someone sitting at the back with um, the more pot. I mean, obviously there's some armies like KO and Corn where they couldn't care less if you eat their magic, but it could be quite powerful, but then it could be completely useless. Yeah, exactly. And that's the conclusion I came to, too, which is why I don't use it anymore. It's a good idea, but, um, yeah, like, <laughs> I can see you just building a list and, like, for the first three round, three games, you just play nobody who cares. So they've got, like, two casts and they're like, okay, cool, bro. Yep. But shutting down Mystic Shield even um, can, can be helpful. Yeah, very true. What about your artifacts? And we'll, we'll pause the mount traits for a second. We'll just talk purely artifacts. Absolutely. Um, I think if you're going to be running a Gutbusters artifact, Gruesome Trophy Rack is the auto-include, um, especially if you're running Underguts. So if you have that situation where you have four Iron Blasters, uh, you've got like a, a Butcher sitting in the center of them, which has Gruesome Trophy Rack, all of a sudden, if there's like a Bloodthirster across the board, you're like, cool, I'm hitting you on threes and twos, Ren three, D3 plus three damage, like it's not going to last very long. Uh, you can really like murder something. Um, this is also pretty decent into OBR, because almost every OBR bring is going to be bringing a Catacross, and it says monster or hero. So you're just blasting Catacross with like eight shots on threes and twos, minus three, because it's underguts, uh, D3 plus three damage. Like, it, it's pretty big. But even outside of underguts, this can be pretty good if you run a lot of foot ogres, just because all mm. of your gut busters are benefiting from it, right? So if you don't have to be spending command points to be hitting on twos, that's great. Um, yeah. It's really, really solid artifact. You're talking lead three... belches, you're talking lead belches, right? No, I mean, uh, like even if you have uh, iron guts within 12 inches of this hero, it just says add ones to hit rolls, uh, so doesn't oh, have to be true. shooting. Yeah. yeah, for some reason I, I just associate gruesome trophy rack with shooting, but you're right. Um, the, the, yeah, I, I, I think I just, I just assumed that like with the first, when the book came out, everyone's running under guts and it was always gruesome trophy rack, so I just associated it always to missile. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be. It can be uh, it can be on any melee attack, any shooting attack, whatever you want. So that's why it's an auto-include, in my opinion, if you are bringing a Gutbusters uh, list. Um, other Gutbusters ones are not amazing. Uh, the Flask of Stonehorn Blood is kind of neat, I guess, but you know, you're saving a foot hero once, maybe, uh, and then chances are you might run into something that can turn off wards, and that's going to make this... Uh, command trait not very good splatter cleaver is okay like you could put it on your tyrant but the tyrant is not enough of a beat stick for it to matter too much in my opinion and then the fang of gur same reason like you're getting run three which is nice but the tyrant is just like not uh, I, there, there's better options for sure like i would much rather have plus one to hit on everything near the tyrant as opposed to uh just him having minus three on one of his weapons um for beast claw raiders um 
The Seed of Alvagor is pretty cool. You can do a second Monstrous Rampage. That's one thing that a lot of people kind of like debate with sometimes is that you'll do your, your Surf with the Stonehorn um, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's next to another monster and he can't roar them. He can't Titanic Duel or something like that. So it's a little bit tough to, to fight them. But once per game, you could say, okay, I'm going to, you know, fly over all of your units and then I'm going to roar this thing. Or I'm going to, uh, like, Titanic Duel something so that I don't have to spend a CP next phase or... Yeah, so that's pretty nice. Um, and that's probably what I would take from there. Yeah. Do you, do you have any thoughts on favorites from Gutbusters of Beast Claw? Uh, I've seen the Elixir of the Frostworm. Um, and that's and that, and that can be nice. But then I also get just like a PSTD and like think of the, rolling, a, rolling a two up. But then I roll a one for the mortal wound and wonder why I used a once per battle artifact for one mortal wound. I think you're right. The, the seat... Is definitely the the pickup. If I'm taking a Frost Lord and Stonehorn, I'm definitely doing this because the as a Gargant play, for example, uh, the Beast Smasher allows me to do two monstrous rampages and being able to stomp and roar, or being able to Titanic Jewel and roar, or and then you add the extra layer of the unstoppable ch uh, charge. That is so valuable. So yeah. um, I also. It also helps you with a battle tactic. Uh, so for ogres, there's a battle tactic where you have to carry out four monstrous rampages in one turn. All of a sudden, two of them are covered by one unit, so you don't have to charge with one additional stonehorn or something. You could kind of be a little bit more reserved, so that helps a lot too. Yeah. Yeah, good call. Good call. Um, <laughs> with the with your mount traits, I think this is going to be a really quick one, right? Because we've already talked about the thunder tusks not being as valuable. And if you're going to go with Boulder Head, you get three mount traits anyway. So you just it's just picking the priority of who gets what. Is it Metal Cruncher that's number one? Nope, it's uh, Rock Main Elder that's number one, I think. Minus one to wound is insane. Uh, if you especially because it's just flat minus one to wound against everything, shooting, melee, everything. Um, and if you can stack as many buffs as you can on a Frost Lord on Stonehorn, including the minus one to wound, it's like nigh unkillable. So that's that's my first choice every time. Metal Cruncher is definitely a second. Um, it's still very good, but I, I go for Rock Main Elder every time if I have one choice. So Rock Main number one, Metal Cruncher second, Belligerent Charge is third. Is your yeah. order of pre preference? Belligerent Charge is actually really bad in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> good, because... good call i was gonna say this because i've seen a lot of people you initially you're like oh cool seven charge of seven is seven great but yep. then there's the other ugly side yeah exactly it's not actually making you a minimum of seven inches to charge it's only for the purposes of the trampling charge battle trait so if you think of the different scenarios that can happen if you already roll a seven or above charge it's a useless mount trait if you roll a seven or less there's a decent chance that you're actually out of range to charge whatever it is that you wanted to charge, and it becomes kind of a useless mount trait. So there's like a tiny window of you being in range of the thing that you have to charge and not rolling more than what this gives you in the first place for it to actually see benefit. So not great, in my opinion. <laughs> like if I would it take was... it if I had a, just because, like, you know, if I had the option, then sure. But it's definitely not going in over the other two. If it was not tied to trampling charge, so if it was like charge rolls uh, less than seven are counted as seven, like that's that's auto include number one. Like, but because it's only for the uh, trampling charge, it's like yeah, less value. Yeah. 
definitely agree. And then for the Thunder Tusk, again, I don't typically bring Thunder Tusks, but Rhyme Frost Hide is a really solid one of having a ward of five plus is nice. Um, adding one to charge rolls isn't huge just because your Thunder Tusks aren't amazing in combat in the first place. Uh, and then Flesh Greed is, again, it's kind of nice, but like you have to stay in combat. Um, and it is at the start of each hero phase, which is pretty nice, but yeah, I would, I would definitely go Rhyme Frost Hide first pick. If Matriarch wasn't tied to Thunder Tusk and it was just pl plus one to charge rolls for Thunder Tusk and Stonehorn, I think I'd be much more of a fan. But if I'm running Thunder Tusks, I really just have one. Like, I, I don't see a world where I run multiple Thunder Tusks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, even if you go into the sub faction, which is Thunder Tusky, like that's, that's like, that's your super exception. Yeah, exactly. No. But they're not in a good spot. Who knows? Maybe Dawnbringer's five is about the Thunder Tusks and the rise of a Thunder Tusk champion who I don't know did some training deep in the mountain with Kragnos. I don't know. Um, do you find yourself in a world where Nullstone adornments are used often? Now, obviously, you could build an army based around priests in the Beast Claw Raiders side a bit better. Um, but given that you use butchers and slaughtermasters and things like that. Does this come up often at all for you? Not particularly. Um, I really like the utility that having spells gives you. Like the Fire Belly has a great utility spell. All of the Gut Magic spells are great utility. And then I actually even like running Arcane Tome on the Stonehorn so he can give himself Mystic Shield. That's super nice too. So I usually don't see these, but certainly if you were running like a 100% Beast Cloud Raiders monster truck list, I could see, you know, these are pretty good. Just having an unbind in your list all the time is pretty nice. So. The only thing I though, is you... that there is the caveat you can't have an artifact and this on the same thing. So that becomes a little bit rough, but yeah. Tell, tell me more. Like, what does that mean? Well, because like you have one big, uh, let's say you have like a, something that has the C developer. Now you can't have this on it as well. And because with a monster trucks list, you usually have like one or two stone horns, I think, and then a bunch of stone horn beast riders. Um, so you might have trouble fitting this into one of those lists so yeah and and the other point that you made i just want to reinforce is would i take an annulstone adornment over arcane tome the answer is no the answer is no now if you have multiple artifacts like seat and you also have something else and you happen to have a hero who can take it and you have no wizards awesome but to me um yeah, I think we've probably spent too much time on this, and probably, if I'm making a fair assumption, is Pouch of Null Dust your favorite? If you happen to find yourself in a situation where you have no wizards uh, and you have the heroes to allocate it, is is this your favorite, or do you like the other two? No, I'd prefer to have the uh, hand-carved Nullstone icon, probably. Um, just for the potential of like unlimited end binds, it's pretty nice, um, because Pouch of Null Dust is actually pretty unlikely to happen because it has to be an unmodified casting rule that includes a double one or double two or double three so that means not using primal dice which add modifiers uh, so it's a little yeah it's it, it, it's a little iffy yeah no i i know for like pouch of Nelvas, people like to have it up their sleeve for that one turn that people are setting up for the blizzard they can drop the pouch of null dust because now it makes it even more of a risk um yeah you can obviously get around it in some cases but um you roll a double one double two or double three in a, in a 
in an initial role and um that can that can hurt but again would i take a null stone adornment only if my list really happened to be one yeah exactly uh, i'm not building a strategy around null stone adornments certainly not in ogres you talk spell laws let's talk the three popular choices or the three uh, generals handbook i wouldn't say popular certainly not for rupture anyway so, um some, some of them are popular let's talk rupture are you taking is uh, is this is this a spell that you would consider i'm not seeing a lot of cron spines ironically enough i saw one yesterday at my rtt but that was also in a night haunt list for lols but outside of that, like there's not a lot of cron spines running around right now. So assuming there is no cron spine attached to a Dawnbringer's book in the future, do you see value right now taking this as a spell choice? No, not right now. It's uh, it doesn't really have any use, and it, and it certainly doesn't beat out any of the other options that you have available to you too. So definitely wouldn't do it. Yeah, I'm not too worried about um, I'm not too worried about predatory endless spells at the moment. And if cron spines either get a point decrease in December, January, or a new cron spine comes out, then maybe revisit re rupture. But right now, I think we're okay. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. What about Blizzard? Blizzard is an interesting one. Um, extremely useful in a lot of armies that just have extra casters laying around. I no longer use Blizzard in my Ogre's army. Like, if I had the option to just, like, also additionally have Blizzard, I definitely wouldn't say no. Uh, but just based on what's available to me, uh, I don't I don't particularly uh, get a lot of use out of it. And I actually did run Blizzard for the first, like, three or four game, third sorry, three or four tournaments of uh, uh, this GHB. And I don't think I successfully casted it once in any of my games. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, ogres don't, or at least the way that I run them, don't particularly have a lot of good access to like getting more primal dice than your opponent. So what you end up doing is you just end up getting into a hard roll off with your opponent. So it's like, okay, effectively a 50-50 or even worse if they have bonuses to casting. Um, and primal dice definitely favor um, uh, unbinding as opposed to like actually casting a spell because uh, you can't primal miscast on an unbind. So it's really good. But I think that having access to Horfrost is more important than putting a Blizzard in your list. And that's why I did that order, because um, I really like Blizzard. I've reconsidered keeping Blizzard in my list. The difference and why I'm keeping it is because I'm playing Gits at the moment, um, maybe switching back to Gargans. But my Gits have 60.70 point Wizards, so the trade-off and the cost allocation is minimal. And it's very easy for me to go to... Um, and Torian Acolytes Battalion. But with um, with you, as we talked earlier, for you to go in Torian Acolytes, it's two wizards, which would be just under 300 points. It means you wouldn't be one drop. You know, is the trade-offs actually there? Yeah, exactly. And ogres really like being one drop. So it's definitely definitely a hard trade-off. Cool. Uh, and then for uh, Horror, go ahead, sorry. Yep. No, 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 I was just going to say, we're going to take a short break in a second. Uh, I need to go just sort out the dog in a minute. But in the meantime, um, well, let's just close off with Hoarfrost, and then we'll take a short break in a second. Hoarfrost, great spell, casting value of eight. We all know it. You talked earlier about this being your favorite spell. Tell me more, and then tell me where it goes. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing is that it has a lot of really good options uh, for where it can go. 
Um, so in my list, I run gluttons, I run iron guts, and I run a stone horn. All three of those are great targets for it. Um, for all three of them, like if you roll a one, then you can make them one plus to hit or one plus to wound. If you roll a two, run two might be decent. Or even if I roll a two and I, I'm using it on a stone horn, like making the rock hard horns hit on a two plus natively is extremely good. Uh, and then if I roll a three, like Ren three is fantastic. If I have gluttons rolling around at Ren three, that's amazing. And all three of them have like a pretty decent use case for for each option. Uh, so like Iron Guts, they're already Ren two. So if I roll a two, I just make them two up to wound. Uh, if I roll a three, maybe I make them rent three, or, or actually I would make them rent three in that case, yeah. And then the same thing with gluttons, the same calculation happens. And then the stone horn, uh, even on a one, two, or three, I would probably still just put it on the hit roll for rock guard horns. So it's super nice. Uh, that's one of the things that ogres can struggle with, um, or specifically the stone horn, is that it has troubles with hitting things with its most valuable profile. So the more you can stack the odds in your favor there, the better. Yeah, like I'm looking at the profile and there's a lot of like wound characteristics of three. So you can get that down to two if you already have a three to hit, you just you know, issue all that attack and, you know, twos and twos. Um, if you need the rend, I guess you could spike with a little higher rend. Yeah, and the nice thing is that this plays pretty well with the Slaughtermaster's pot, um, where you can resolve the Slaughtermaster's pot first, which effectively, if you roll a three or a four in your hero phase, you can give something plus one to wound anyway. So if you really want to stack something up, uh, you could say like, I'm gonna I'm gonna give these Iron Guts plus one to wound because I know they're gonna get into combat this turn. Then if I cast Hoarfrost on a one or a two, you can just do it to their hit roll and save them a CP. Or a three, you can make them rend three, and then all of a sudden that's twos twos rend three three damage, which is you know crazy. There's a benefit no matter what you roll. Yeah, I'm just looking at the War Scroll of the Gluttons again, and, you know, they've got four attacks if you do the paired clubs, or three if it's the just the, club, the regular club. Um, threes, threes, Ren one for two. If you put that to Ren three, or if you put that down to, to wound characteristic of two, twos, twos, either Ren one. Like that's, that's a lot of attacks from, you know, the humble old Glutton. Yeah, a Glutton unit, a minimum-sized Glutton unit has a damage potential of 50. Um and if you have that on run three, it's crazy. It's already pretty reliably getting through on threes and threes. But yeah, if you manage to get it down to twos and twos, it's even better. And the nice thing is you can kind of pick what you want to do based on your opponent. Like if I'm going against OBR, maybe I do want run two or run three. Uh, but if I'm going against something that has a low save already, then definitely just guaranteeing that the damage gets through in the first place is the priority. So while we're talking gluttons for a hot second, um... Have you found the coherency changes, given that this unit size is six, do you find that the coherency changes has made much of a difference with gluttons? Yeah, absolutely. It's Congo lines all day. <laughs> We're running Congo lines of ogres down the entire battlefield. I do that a lot. So and my dog agrees, apparently. Um, but yeah, it's it's been amazing. Yeah, I, I, that's a really beneficial thing for you. Like, I just, I, I was, th yeah, I was looking at it going, oh, yeah, it's unit six. Like, there's, because you, you do have, like, you know, your Yetis are unit, units of three. So, again, that would benefit. Um, your Lead Belchers are units of four. So, that's not as beneficial. And same as the Iron Guts there in that weird unit of four. But I guess if they, when they start dying, you start to benefit. Yep. All right, on that note, I'm gonna, we're going to take a short break. Uh, it won't actually seem like a break to all you people in future land watching this after it's edited, but uh, we'll be back in a second. We'll talk about the other spells.
All right, we're back from break, and uh, now we got the other spells to talk about. So we've talked about Blizzard, and it's good. Uh, Hoarfrost, really good for us. Is it better than the spells natively in the book? And are we looking at something like Warlord or uh, Command Entourage to get us two spell choices? And do we go, you know, Bloodfeast and Hoarfrost? Or, you know, how are we thinking of the spells? So let's go through the, I don't know, what, what are the spells that you prefer? And are they better than what we just talked about, Blizzard, Hoarfrost, yada? Yeah, they. each of these actually has one really good use. Um, none of them are strictly better than the others. Uh, so I guess just kind of like, Going down the list, like Blood Feast is extremely valuable. It adds another damage potential of 12 to a unit of Gluttons. It adds another damage potential of uh, also 12 to a unit of Iron Guts, but at higher rend. Um, Blubber Grub Stench is really good because sometimes if you want to do the Avalanche of Flesh battle trait or battle tactic, you know, you're doing mortals on three ups if you charge with your Iron Blaster uh, in a Meat Fist because it's a monster and it gets plus one for being Gutbusters. Uh, Molten Entrails is really nice if you know you're going to be just like whipping your Stone Horn in there. Like dealing five flat damage with Rock Hard Horns is nuts. Uh, and then Greasy Deluge is pretty good, just you know picking something and giving it minus one to hit. It's a solid debuff uh, if you have nothing else to do. So all of these are really solid, which is kind of why I've landed on taking the Gastromancer command trait to have access to all of them and then just picking Hoarfrost. Um, to be honest, if I was going to be running a Warlord Battalion, I'd probably just pick. An extra artifact and then take the uh uh what's it called gruesome trophy rack instead of mm. an extra spell just because everything being plus one to hit is also extremely valuable uh, against monsters and heroes specifically but still the, the the greasy deluge i really like because it seems underwhelming at first like minus one to hit so what i'll just use a command ability too but it's it's spending a resource to get somebody back to where they started uh, it means they can't get any higher, so they, you know, very rarely are they going to be able to get a plus two to hit. In Obviously, there's some situations where you can, but in most cases, they're spending a resource just to hit on base value. So um, I really like that, and having a really high range as well of 18 is is one of one of the reasons, one of my favorites. And it's missile and melee, so um, yeah. Yeah, and I think out of all of, right, it is out of all of these, the only one that actually targets an enemy unit. Um, so if you are going against like Null Myriad or Corn or something, maybe it's one that you don't want to use, but it's definitely really useful against other armies that, especially if they already struggle with hitting, uh, that minus one to hit can be really devastating. What about yeah, fire bellies? Now we talk, we've, we're, we've talked. This is the season for fire bellies, and I'm really happy that it's finally here. Yeah, I mean, I I take the fire belly literally just to get access to the spell lore. Um, so I pay 120 point tax for billowing ash, essentially. Uh, in, a, in an army that already kind of struggles with being a little bit, you know, not tanky, um, having minus one to hit is really good. If you have a butcher that casts greasy deluge on something, and you have a fire belly at billowing ash, all of a sudden you're preventing your opponent's ability to just spend a CP to counteract the minus one. So that's really devastating. Um, the other two spells are, are pretty decent, but if you're only picking one, you're picking billowing ash every time for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, when I read Billowing Ash for the first time, it reminded me of my Gobapalooza bubble and how annoying that can be because 12, 12 inches is a generous base size and you'll take up at least a, a, a section of the battlefield just you know with, with that range. Tongues of Flame isn't too bad, 
But yeah, billowing ash number one, that little debuff bubble um, can protect your iron, your uh, lead belchers. It could be going along with your um, your gluttons or your iron guts, or there's a lot of things you could do with it actually. You protect your knoblers too. If someone's like, oh, those are just knoblers, I'll clear them out and then, you know, go in and kill the squishy stuff after. Um, all of a sudden, those knoblers are minus one to hit, and you might not kill the whole unit, which is pretty extremely annoying actually <laughs> for an opponent. Cool. Well, with your underguts, as you said, you put the, what's the artifact that lets, no, it's the command trait that makes them Battleshock immune, right? You know, you yep. you, you have the billowing, uh, you have the tongues of, no, billowing ash to to make it harder to to kill them. You're making them Battleshock immune. That probably receives an Unleashed Hell as well as the traps as you've gotten into them. Um, it's a solid castle and uh, your opponent's just like, look, I don't want to deal with this. Like, just, how about no? Yeah, it's a solid castle that every single thing inside of it, like, slaps extremely hard. So you're like, I don't want to go anywhere near that. That sounds terrible. Like, I'm not going to be able to hurt it very bad. And then when it, you know, hits me back, it's going to hurt really badly. <laughs> like, uh, it catches a lot of people off guard. Yeah, people, when I play, again, I keep referring to my gits, you know, when I play with my stabbers and people charge a unit of 20 stabbers, they that minus one to hit on the stabbers really increases their durability and people underestimate what it takes to actually bring down a unit of 20 and i just have that cp up my sleeve you obviously don't need it if you if you build around it so um good call i really like it yep absolutely if you were going to take a priest let's 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 throw a dog a bone uh what what prayer are you taking i would take uh probably keening gale um, just to, like make sure that your stuff actually gets in. Pulverizing Hailstorm is pretty good too, um, and I would almost never take Call of the Blizzard. Yeah. So you but... do Kinning Gale, make your Frostlord on Stonehold a priest, then give it that plus three move, and just run up the board and smash. Yeah, yeah. the Splashing Mortal Wounds is pretty good too. Like from Pulverizing Pulverizing Hailstorm, eighteen inches is a really long range. So yeah, that's a really solid option too. It, it definitely depends on what you're building in your list. Honestly, Keening, Keening Gale is um, really good for the like Thunderbellies list too, if you ever want to actually try and spec into Mornfang, just because they do move a little bit slower than Frostlord. So giving them plus three and run and charge is all of a sudden enough to like get them across the board. Yeah, and I mean, like your dog was asking about Call of the Blizzard, and like, to be honest, dog, I don't think like it's a, a good spell. Like I, I don't see a world where I'm building into Frost Sabers, although Yetis have their play um, if you really want to build into Yetis. But again, like it's probably my third choice of the three. Like I, I probably see more value in Keening Gale and Pulverizing Hailstorm out of the three. Yeah, exactly. Um I think Icefall Yetis are kind of in the same camp uh, as Maneaters for me, where it's like, they seem cool. I would really like them for the, for them to be cool, but the model is just, it's really old at this point. It's resin. Like, I don't want to spend a bunch of money, like, getting into them, and they're not great at the moment anyway. So next battle come, hopefully. I think if there's much more native synergy, and I think that's the challenge, right? Like, whether you're doing Gut Busters or Beast Claw Raiders, if you look at things like Maneaters, or you look at things like your Yetis, even Gorges, like, is there a Gorger hero? Is there other synergies that build around them? Not really. They're independent pieces. They they do a thing, but you can't easily build around them. And that's probably what's missing. You add a Yeti monster or a Yeti hero, that changes the conversation a little bit. 
you add a man eater like a i don't know something that, that, that they can build around changes changes the value absolutely um, yeah give me a yeti monster like give me like a super super yeti give me a super yeti i'm down for a super yeti guaranteed sale from me um where's your grand strategies at are you picking something from the book or are you picking something from the general's handbook i'm doing ready for plunder every time uh it's the ogres take what's theirs basically like ogre player i mean if you're running under guts i probably wouldn't take that one but if you're running beast cloud raiders you know you're going to want to be just launching yourself at your opponent if you're running gut busters you're going to want to be doing the same thing like this is effectively it's a it's a win more strategy for sure like if you have dealt with your opponent pretty well this is one that you're almost guaranteed to get um so that's usually what i take I can see some arguments for spellcasting savant or maybe overshadow if you're running gutbusters because you can you have a lot of battle line in that case. But yeah, I, I'm always ready for plunder. What about enough grub for all? Because on paper that seems like it's an easy one to achieve. Got a more pot, spend it, fill it again, win. Like that's like on paper that sounds easy to achieve. Yeah, but as soon as your opponent knows that, all of a sudden. They just say, okay, I'm just never going within six inches of your pot. And then they can, it's a very easily interactable strategy, unfortunately. Um, and also it's one of the grand, kind of grand strategies that actually counteracts what you want to be doing with the army, which is you want to be going way in your opponent's face. And chances are, if they're coming to you that close, something's kind of gone wrong. Um, so it's not going to be, it's, you know, if things are going really well for you, it, it's not really possible to score. Hmm. I'd like to see this in a future update where, for example, in Sylvaneth, you can extend the range of strike and fade um, by three inches in a sub-faction. I'd love an ability to be able to unlock that because that's six inches. You, you can play around it. And that's why I was saying to you before, I don't find a lot of value in the more pot. I mean, obviously, the plus one to cast cast unbind dispel is valuable. But like once you've spent the, the, the pit, the, the pot, the you don't really refill it very often it's super super unlikely but if you could extend that somehow through a spell extend it through a sub faction um i think it brings a lot more to the party and things like this become uh, a, be a better choice yep absolutely but ready for plunder i would tend to agree with you spell casting savant yeah very possible i guess it's a little bit harder to bodyguard and protect your your wizards right because you know you do have a little bit more wounds they don't natively have wards uh it's a bit harder to screen because your 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 bodies are going into combat so um you just got to really protect that 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 Entorian locust general yeah and there's been games where i've lost both of my wizards and literally nobody else um and just absolutely like tabled my opponent but it just so happened that i lost my fire belly and my slaughter master so that can happen whereas with ready for plunder it's like if you win hard against someone like you're getting it no no question and and that's kind of outside of as you said the i are the underguts this is what you want to do anyway like this is complementing your play style very well yeah exactly cool what about battle tactics because this is something that um continues to come up with various people because the battle tactics in general are a little harder than previous seasons and even my first battle tactic in the battle round is uh is very it's a lot harder again than than previous 
How do you think about battle tactics and are they ones that you use more than others? Yeah, absolutely. Um, anytime that I can, I'm going to try for magical dominance turn one. Like, that's going to be, I guess, just like going through the GHB battle tactics first. You can actually score almost all of them with ogres. Um, it's very reactionary, though. So, like, a, a big thing that determines what you're going to be doing first turn, for instance, is going to be what is the battle plan that you're playing. Uh, and if you're playing on a battle plan that has no man's land and you're able to get intimidate the invaders very easily, all of a sudden you don't have to take the first turn or you don't have to do something. Uh, there's like there's options, right? And you can kind of react to what your opponent does after that. Um, but depending on what your opponent takes, like if you know that they can't really capitalize on a double turn against you, um, just taking the first turn and doing magical dominance is always a really good option. Uh, just like backboarding your your casters essentially and, and doing that. So usually though, first turn I'm going to be doing either like intimidate the invaders or magical dominance. Second turn, depending on what happens, you could be doing bait and trap. Lead into the maelstrom is a really good one. Um, yeah, or one of the ones that I didn't do the previous turn. The only thing to keep in mind about magical dominance is, and this applies to all armies, is that my dog agrees, is that uh, you really only have one shot at this most of the time, unless you like absolutely table your opponent and they have no means of actually dispelling something. You chances are you're only going to be able to get a shot at this one time which is like the very first turn of the game. Otherwise, they're going to have wizards in range, uh, and then you're in danger of it being unbound, which kind of sucks. Um, it's, and turn, then... it's turn one or turn five, really. Like, yeah. it's, it's you either, there's no wizards on the table, and you cast it freely at the end, or you set it up turn one, outside of 12, so outside of 30, um, you have the more pot, not the more pit. Actually, does that if you take the more pit... Does that change the likelihood or the reasoning for taking magical uh, dominance in the first turn? It does affect it a lot. Um, there's like that plus one doesn't seem crazy, but you know a four instead of a five on Mystic Shield or a five instead of a six on Billowing Ashes, it's pretty big. Like it's you know a significant increase in likelihood that it's going to happen. So that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of a little bit torn about it is because I actually tend to take magical dominance first turn a lot. Um, and even if I'm not taking the first turn, I'll usually deploy in such a way that like, I'll have my Slaughtermaster and my Firebelly like, absolute back of board, and then the Stonehorn is within 12 of them to benefit from any buffs and Mystic Shield and whatnot, but like as far forward as possible. So I'm basically like calling my opponent's bluff by saying, uh, you can put a wizard within 30 of these two guys, but he's going to be within 18 inches of a Stonehorn, probably, right? Uh, and then all of a sudden the Stonehorn is a threat that they have to deal with if they want to put their wizards that close. So it's kind of a, it's a gamble for them. Um, mm. Yeah. No, I like it. I like it a lot. And it's, and it's actually a really good call out in regards to if you are thinking of switching from the pot to the pit, you know, how reliant are you on that plus one to cast uh, dispel and unbind? Does that put more pressure on your primal magic dice? Because if you hit the far, the four and you needed a five, to get it off and you definitely need your battle tactic are you looking for arcane terrain are you now having to use a primal magic dice just to get up and what's the impacts of you trying to unbind your opponent with one less dice so there's a flow-on effect uh, that's worth considering at least before you switch out pot for pit or pit for pot yep exactly and then kind of going into the the ogre battle tactics there there's some really good ones here uh like eat your fill it's a little bit dicey because maybe you can't get everything that you have into combat 
that's typically like a turns three to five one, in my opinion, where it's like the battle has really progressed. You want to be in combat with anything, everything anyway. Uh, so you're just like charging everything in. Now, the unfortunate thing is that trampling charge can actually prevent your ability to score this battle tactic because it says at the beginning of the combat phase. So you can you can kill somebody too hard in the charge phase and fail your battle tactic, which I've definitely done. Um, Savor the Taste is an amazing option for turn two because effectively it means like, okay, if you've solved your turn one battle tactic, you know, you did magical dominance or intimidate the invaders or something, uh, and there's some reason why you really don't want to get anywhere near your opponent, you can basically just stay as far back as possible, play really cagey, and then wait for like another strike later. Uh, and then no ogres are in combat is like a very easy thing to score at the end of the turn. Or if you know that you're going to overkill something so hard that <laughs> that no ogres are going to be in combat at the end of the turn anyway, you can also take Savor the Taste. Uh, like if you have one squig in combat with a stone horn, then you're like, yeah, I'm comfortable taking this battle tactic this time. <laughs> like it's going to be, it's going to be fine. Uh, Avalanche of Flesh is that's like a turn two or three tactic only, in my opinion, just because you kind of have to have at least four units that are doing trampling charge mortals on a four up uh, to like really feel safe about taking this tactic. And even then, it's kind of at, at the mercy of the dice. So you, most of the time, uh, you're either going to be out of range turn one to be able to do that, or uh, later in the game, you're going to be, you're not going to have enough units to actually satisfy that. Uh, Winter, take the. Almost never going to happen. <laughs> like there would be, I've never been able to score this one. Uh, that just, yeah, it has to be like a really specific situation of like it's turn five and your stone horns in combat with the hero that has like one wound left or something, and you have literally no other battle tactics to score. Uh, that's when you would take that challenge as well as a heroic recovery comes in. So you pick your battle tactic and then you go into heroic actions. And if you pick that enemy hero, well, I mean, monster can't do it, but enemy hero is going to is going to choose the, the heroic recovery. So unless they're unlucky, you really need to spike that one. Well, I mean, they can't heroic recovery if, if you're in combat with them, which is like the proc for Grasp of the Everwinter. But any beginning of the hero phase heals are going to be a problem for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, because of the way that the Grasp of the Everwinter triggers, which is, you know, obviously based on the battle round, you would likely see this come out turn four to turn five, as opposed to putting your gut on a turn two roll of a one. Uh, yeah, it's a risky play. Yeah. Uh, and then Let Them Loose is going to be almost autocomplete if you're running monster trucks, and almost impossible if you're running... Uh, uh, gut busters and then boil their bones is another one of those that's just kind of like it depends on if your opponent interacts with it or not like if they if they willingly put a monster or hero within six inches of your mop pot and you've already spent it definitely go for it like it's it's worth a shot the only thing i would say is be careful about uh redeploys like there have been times where something has been within six inches and i'm like haha i'm gonna do this battle tactic and then i run near them and they're like okay steps two inches this way and suddenly they're outside and i'm just like oh my plans. How could you? Oh, there's been so many times where it's like, don't move and just try to go for the longer charge because otherwise, if they roll that redeploy, they're out of that range or you've made the charge even harder. So it's a good call. It's a really good call. Like, that's just an easy if the situation occurs. That's a really good call. Interesting. So, turn one, you're thinking about surround, destroy, intimidate, and/or magical dominance um 
I guess it depends on your build and depends on how you're thinking. But it sounds like it looks like, it looks like you got a lot of really good battle tactics to choose from. Yeah, yeah. Realistically, you have three options turn one, uh, which is magical dominance if you're not in range of anything, intimidate the invaders if you're on a no man's land map, or uh, let into the maelstrom is also possible if let's say you opt to go second or you're forced to go second or something like that and your opponent is playing a particularly aggressive army um and you can guarantee okay the stonehorn will definitely charge and then one of my battle line units will definitely charge as well that's one that's that's pretty easy to get uh and then really whenever you're going second on the first battle round it's purely reactionary so like if your opponent is like a very alpha strike army you're like i'm not going to have any problem scoring like avalanche of flesh bait and trap led into the maelstrom something like that so you can feel pretty safe about your turn one battle tactic uh but if not then you might want to consider going first and just taking magical dominance yeah definitely definitely it's a, it's a good call just be mindful of uh any any heroes that can turn themselves into a wizard with the heroic action but um good call especially if you have the more pot more pit but you know probably look for arcane terrain and and hope for the best yep so with all of this in mind and we've done a pretty you know deep discussion so far without going into individual units but we've kind of called out our favorites and what we like and, and like what one thing i was thinking about is you know there might be a, a use case of uh, frost sabers even if you're not taking the icebrow hunter take a unit of one you know one one to two units of uh frost sabers could be a great way to do surround destroy and even bait and trap, you know, they might be units that you'd want to charge a retreat from a charge or even maybe to charge into uh, another unit that's retreated. They can't take a hit very well, so you've obviously got to make sure that uh, when they are in combat, they uh, they take minimal damage. But they can unlock a couple of battle tactics for you quite nicely too. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, different matchups will unlock you know, different battle tactics really well for you. Like, uh, one thing I've discovered is if you play against Corn, Bait and Trap is actually really nice. Is like uh, calling your opponent's bluff. If they put something just in Murderlust range and you're like, I'm doing Bait and Trap, and they, and they know that their choices are basically to either block your units in combat or uh, deny you a battle tactic, all of a sudden that's a decision that your opponent has to make and it could be worth losing two victory points to make them, uh, like, reconsider something like that, so... So with all this in mind, let's actually look at some of Carlson's lists. So this is the first list, and uh, we, you know, we did talk about you know armies of renown being not being as competitive maybe as a traditional build, but here's an example of where you might kind of like this is kind of like some ideas around how we would make it the most of the roving more army. So uh, it is spellcasting savant and and indominal indomitable sorry uh you have a, a slaughter master which is the general prime gut server uh, artifact is the gruesome trophy no that can't be that's right. wrong sorry it, <laughs> it's the it's the roving mar thing i think i forgot to all good it's not oh. actually in the app yet so i forgot to change it all good yes it's not in the app yet so list building is difficult i'll edit this in post-production don't worry about that the artifact was carson what was it uh it is the flask of meet something from the roving cool. maw yeah <laughs> cool. so it's, it's, yeah. it's a roving more artifact no yeah. problem we also have the merciless blizzard uh yeah list building when the apps aren't updated is very tough so uh like, you didn't win a gt with this so like don't 
anyway uh we got a butcher we tenderize a blizzard we have a butcher we tenderize a blizzard we have a unit of noblars 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 four units of noblars three units of gorge and more packs uh two iron blasters and the more pit uh wrapped up in a vanguard and an Antorian acolyte battalion at 1960 points so what's this list do how does it work and what are you trying to do under a roving more army yeah so this is very much so a don't come near me i bite kind of list uh so as we talked about earlier in the show uh your noblars are going to be actually doing goblin bites as well so d3 plus one mortal wounds uh the noblars are already really dangerous to come near uh and then basically what the iron blasters are doing are just providing like a ranged threat for your opponent to have to deal with at some point just because again 39 inch threat range like damage potential of 12 each from that range which is pretty crazy at Ren 2 um becomes pretty scary to deal with and then having blizzard on everything uh the butcher's war scroll spell for anyone that doesn't know um is also an 18 inch range uh like chomp like basically if you cast it you deal d3 mortal wounds you roll a four up you deal another d3 mortal wounds and you just keep going until you don't roll a four up uh, which is really fun and thematic. So this is basically just like, if you come near me, I'm going to be doing a crap ton of mortal wounds to you. Um, it's not necessarily, again, going to 5-0 anything. I just thought it was fun, like putting 80 Novlars on the battlefield. Um, these Gorders are just dropping down left and right, like charging into the back line. Uh, if you come anywhere near me, I'm going to be like blizzarding you and doing the voracious mob from the Butcher. Uh, yeah, I just think it would be a lot of fun. And I think your opponent would probably have a lot of fun too how how are you thinking about this on the table is this just a traditional advance up the board using noblars as screens and just general harassing on objectives any any thoughts around how this actually would play out this would certainly be a castle army um so this would be one where i would probably put the mob pit in my territory the slaughter master is just sitting inside of it um huge pillow of noblars on the outside as the iron blasters just kind of pick things off that i need them to and then Gorders would be coming down, securing objectives as needed, or, you know, the maybe they're just hitting stuff in the back line. Like, it's very utility-esque in that sense. So, yeah. Cool. No, I, I like think, it. Again, I mean, I don't think it's going to 5-0, but <laughs> I think it'd be fun. Yeah. Again, considering some of the restrictions you have in list building, um, uh, it does seem like fun, and it does seem like you've got plenty of bodies on the board. You've got a little bit of shooting. You've got a little bit of combat. You've got the wizards on the board, uh, and obviously having Blizzard is going to help with the damage output. You've got a lot of chip damage here and there. The Obviously, the Iron Blasters have some great range. Um, yeah, no, I dig it. And we will make the, again, this the artifact of, is, is changed post-production. One, one of the benefits of not doing live content anymore is now I can fix up my mistakes, and it looks like we didn't make any mistakes. Not at all. What, what, are you, what are you talking about? Uh, there's no mistakes here. The other list uh, is a meat fist list. Uh, you've gone ready for plunder. You've gone triumph as inspired. You have a fire belly with the billowing ash. You frost lord on stonehorn with arcane tome and the rock main elder. You've got yourself a slaughter master who's the general with the gastromancer and hoarfrost as a spell. You've got a unit of iron gluttons. Oh, sorry, iron gluttons. Where did iron come from? Ogre gluttons. Uh, I was getting a little bit too far ahead of myself. There is also uh, two units of iron guts. You've got another unit of iron 
iron gluttons. Why am I calling them iron gluttons? You've got two units of gluttons, two units of iron guts, a iron blaster. This is like corn where it's like blood everything or skull everything. You've got a unit of noblars and an iron blaster. Ava haven't said it already. So um, that's a 2,000 point nose uh, on the dock kind of list with a battle regiment. So is that a one drop? Yeah, yep. yeah it's one drop. Yep, everything's, everything's asterisk, so it's a one drop. So how does this list differ and is this something that you've been running at GTs and I guess, how does it work? Yeah, I can I can talk through all of that. So this list, I've been basically modifying it for the past six months, maybe seven months. Um, I, I, I kind of ran something similar-ish to this in uh, the first 2000 point tournament I went to back in March, I think, uh, Cake or Death. Uh, that was before the GHB and just ever since I've just been like tweaking little things here and there. Um, Tacoma also brought something similar to this, uh, where instead of a slaughtermaster, it was a butcher. Um, you know, I was running Shaman of the Chilled Lands instead, and that was really it. Um, aside from that, yeah, I've just been like slowly tweaking it. Uh, it's 2,000 points on the nose, so like the triumph isn't actually relevant, like you said, and it makes me very anxious about the next battle scroll. How it works is basically, uh, I'm kind of the type of player that I don't like not interacting with my opponent any time ever like i like so at any point like if it's their hero phase i can do dispelling uh if it's the shooting phase i can hit you with the iron blaster i could be charging you i could be hitting you in combat like this list is basically designed to be like pure utility um and also like, making sure that my opponent never feels safe if that makes sense so it's like sure you can stay really far away from me and my foot ogres can't really get near you, but the Iron Blaster is just going to be taking chunks out of something every turn. Uh, and the Stonehorn is going to be able to get to you pretty easily too. Um, this this has done really well for me. Like I, I 5-0'd with this list a couple times. Uh, definitely won best overall a bunch of times too. Like um, At Tacoma, I came six, as you said before. So it's just been really nice. Everything in the list essentially is a hammer in some way. Like the, Obviously not the Noblars, but like... Even when you go near the Noblars, they're hurting you. Like you end within six, they hurt you. You charge them, they hurt you. You pile into them, they hurt you. Like just lots of stuff like that. Um, and also it allows me to be really reserved. So what I can do is with that Firebelly's Billowing Ash spell of, you know, minus one to hit within 12, I can just pack the entire army into that and slowly move it up the board until I know that, okay, now's the time where I can deal a devastating blow. Things come out of the castle and just absolutely like smack, right? It's It can be pretty deadly. Um, but a lot of it too is just about like positioning. Um, you know, the Stonehorn moves 14 inches, so he's a very good fast anvil. I can move him up, charge him in, tie up a whole bunch of stuff while the rest of my army kind of advances. And even if that means that the Stonehorn is going to die in a turn or two, it's not the worst thing in the world if my opponent's army does literally nothing for those two turns, right? Um, but then there are other games where I want to be really reserved with my Stonehorn. Like maybe I know that he's going to be the Counter Strike piece. Uh, yeah, purely just all about handling every possible situation that I can. Like this doesn't get countered by anything, and it doesn't counter anything, but it does quite well into everything. So, yeah, I really I, what I really like about this is there's a lot of independent threats. Like if you take down one of these units, it's not like the rest of your army crumbles. Like you take out a, a unit of iron guts, cool, you've still got many many, many various threats. Um, you know, you lose the Iron Blaster. Okay, 
all right, I mean, sure, it was nice to have it, but you've still got, as you mentioned, the Frostlord and Stonehorn, the Gluttons, the Iron Guts. There's this, there's a lot of good value pieces here, and I guess you, what you've demonstrated and one of the things that I've really enjoyed in your last six months of competitive gaming is that this list has evolved, but you've you've kept true. So even while new battle tomes drop and meta shifts and things rise and fall in their power, you've stuck to the playstyle. And I've always said for years and years and years that it's less about the list. It's more about the micro decisions you're making on the table. It's about being predictable and anticipating and understanding the limitations and the strengths of your army. And by committing and, and understanding how to handle certain armies, you, you become a better gamer. So uh, my advice to anyone who's thinking about this is, you know, take this list, run it. Um, but like, just because you lose a game doesn't mean you should gut your list. Like experienced players will, will change a unit or two, but like gutting and fundamentally changing a list is usually never the right approach. But you've, you, it's a solid list. If I was to play you, it's definitely hard to work out where to start. Most people probably look at the, the Frost Lord on Stonehorn and want to target that, which is great for the Iron Guts because they're like, cool, we're, we're going to get in unwounded because uh, the Frost Lord is taking the damage, put a Finest Hour on it, throw an Arcane Tome Mystic Shield on it, um, heal it with the with the the more pot, and you are you know, you're pretty, pretty survivable. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of as you were saying before like playing the same thing and kind of getting used to everything else is a is a really important thing ogres are a very honest army like pretty much what you see is what you get like you look at the war scroll you're like that punches pretty hard it moves pretty fast and you know it doesn't take a whole lot of damage but it's still good um and because of that i've been able to really focus on like okay how exactly does piling in and combat and charging like all of this sequencing stuff work and i don't have to focus on like some crazy machinations of like playing a Zeech army, for instance, where it's like, I have to, I have to execute my plan perfectly with this army or else it's all gone. With Ogres, it's very forgiving in the sense that like, if you get something in, it's going to slap hard. Um, and it kind of allows you to just focus on positioning like really, really well. And yeah, I've had a lot of fun playing it. And actually a, a teammate of mine brought this list to the same tournament, uh, or Kipper's Melee actually, um, and he went 4-1 with it, despite like never really playing Ogres in a tournament before. And he was like, cool, this was a lot of fun. And it just, you just takes a lot of load off your mind. You're like, all right, let's get into it. Let's fight. Yeah, let's do it. Like, you're not really concerned about like that one thing going off or this one unit not dying. So, yeah. I was talking to a mate the other day about uh, a tournament coming up. And he's like, do I run Iron Jaws with all the piggies or do I run Gargans? And I'm like, look, one of the things I love about Gargans is that it's so liberating because i don't care i don't have teleports i don't have like all these different various tricks it's just like it's very honest i do what i do really well and i don't have to think about the mental load of like you know all the counter stuff because i can't i just i, I move forward and stay on circles and as some of my favorite wrestlers would say this list is no tricks just fists and that's what it is you just get into combat just punch bite claw and uh, shout out to the Noblars. I don't think I've ever noticed that the champion in a Noblar is called the Growing Biter. Uh, I have a new appreciation for Noblars uh, based purely on the Groin Biter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's best champion name in the game, in my opinion. I don't think I've ever noticed that. 
it's it's there. <laughs> and if you run multiple cool. loblars, you have multiple grind biters. So have fun with that. <laughs> All right, I got some I got some Discord questions for you to kind of bring us home, and then I'll let you do some shout outs and uh, let you go on your merry way. Um, are you ready for some some questions from from the peeps? Absolutely. All right, so I'm going to ask this. It's kind of already been answered, but do you have any opinions on uh, a heavy gorgeous list? So, like, I know we talked a little earlier about, you know, would you run two units of five or a unit of ten? But, you know, do you have any thoughts even going further than that? Like, uh, would you, you know, two units of ten? Would you go even harder on gorgeous? I don't think so. I think they're definitely a utility piece, as we kind of discussed at the beginning of the show. Um, I personally am going to run like maybe one in a game if I do run them at all, uh, and then kind of see where it goes from there. But they're definitely not like a spam it, keep bringing more gorgers kind of kind of unit. So, yeah, I would definitely keep it pretty light touch at the beginning. Yeah, that that question came from Azakura. So yeah, I I, I tend to agree. Like one or two units probably at most. When I start going in and reinforcing them to be units of um, ten. Uh, that's 440, and that's that's Frostlord on Stonehorn territory, and I, I struggle to justify. Yeah, it's more wounds, but the output and the value and the speed, I, I, I can't. I personally couldn't justify it going any, any heavier than than two units of five, unless obviously you're doing the uh, the roving more where they become battle line, and maybe maybe that does change it a little bit more. Yep. Now, now that we've had this entire conversation, are you leaning towards the more pit or the old more pot coming from 4020? Sorry, 42, sorry. 42 is the Discord um, member. Yeah, I definitely want to play with the more pit. Uh, so like in my personal games, I'm going to be using the more pit every time just to see how it does. And I think that it has the possibility of being better than the more pot every time. But being the way that I am, I need to... I need to make sure that that's the right choice before I actually commit to that for a tournament. And with the importance of the tournaments coming up, I'm probably not going to be running it. Uh, so, because I've got a, a Masters tournament for the Pacific Northwest coming up, and then immediately after that is the World Championships in Atlanta, where it's like, I don't know if I want to make a change to something that's been working pretty well already, uh, like last minute. That could be a little bit, you know, I could shoot myself in the foot. No, I, I think the mental load, you stick to what you currently got. Uh, Kev asking, how do you deal with cheap uh, minimum size unit armies that are roadblocking you? Uh, that's, yeah, that's a tough one. The one that comes to mind, and that is corn, where they're just like, I'm going to put this basically useless unit directly in front of you. You have to deal with it because I'm locking you in combat with it. Um, that's a tough one. And with that one, I would say you kind of have to spread out a little bit. Um, the nice thing is that if you also have lots of minimum size units like gluttons or iron guts well they make a big charge they can actually just slip through all of those minimum size units and strike all of them at once um so you really only need like one big hammer swing to kind of get rid of them and like there's there's been some games where i play against an opponent that does something like that i get all of my stuff in and they're like oh all of my screens are gone <laughs> like <laughs> they're all gone in one combat phase like i didn't expect that to happen so um it's it's a pretty easy problem for ogres to deal with as long as you don't clump up too much Second question from Kev is, um, what do you do against deep striking teleport heavy armies? So, I mean, Sylvaneth would definitely be one of those, but they're not definitely, you know, uh, Beast Claw Raiders, not Beast Claw Raiders, uh, Beast of Chaos would be another. There's obviously many examples of, of this, but 
how do you think about those? That's kind of purely why the knoblers are there. Um, it's like whenever I'm going into a Sylvanef list, uh, you can just put your knoblars in front of your entire front lines uh, as far ahead as you need to, just blocking them from getting any real value. Because it's like, sure, you can go and attack the knoblars and you can clear them, but then you're spending a turn dealing with a 120 point unit that I, I effectively want them to die. Like, <laughs> I'm not too worried about that. Um, and then for other deep striking heavy armies, it's really just about punishing your opponent for coming close to you. So when you castle up and you create this like meat blob in the center of the board that you're just slowly moving forward, maybe you've got all of your buffs from the minus one to hit for billowing ash. Maybe you've got like good counter strike potential. Um, really the best thing you can do is just weather the storm and then punch them back as hard as you can. So don't spread out too much against armies like that. Like if you're covering the entire board against like Stormcast or Sylvaneth or something like that, chances are things are just going to get picked off one at a time as opposed to you being able to say, okay, now that you've killed this one unit, I can come back and just destroy whatever you've decided to put there. So, yeah. Maybe my, maybe my final question um, is, do you have any advice on trading up with your ogres? Because as we've kind of demonstrated, you don't get a lot of tools in, in an ogre army. You have to get more value than what you're putting in, right? Those iron guts are 240, they can slap, but do they get the most out of their points? And, and that can be challenging for ogres. Any thoughts or advice on how you trade up and, I guess, kill more, score more than what you've invested in a unit? Yeah, my biggest tip would probably be to be more reserved than you think you should be as an ogre player. Um, you really... It's, it's like an almost irresistible urge to get as close as you can to your opponent and just charge with everything. But because you really don't have any strike first, you don't have any activation chaining of any kind, it's actually worth it to keep most of your stuff back until you absolutely need it or you know that it's not going into something that can hit you back really hard. Um, and then another big point would be that's kind of where the Slaughter Master, or sorry, the uh, Frost Lord really becomes like extremely useful, uh, is that if you can pin something down that's really important to your opponent, then... You know, it's going to severely reduce their ability to like actually hit the stuff that you want to be trading with. Uh, so like protecting your iron guts by putting basically sacrificing your stone horn for like two turns because it's so tough. It's a big thing. I'm going to ask you the final question I ask everyone on that comes on the channel is if you had a chance to influence the next ogre book. Is there anything that you would add? And uh, I'm not talking just rules. I could be talking about like a new unit. Like, is there a particular gap you think the ogres are missing um, that you'd love to see in the next iteration of Ogre More Tribes? Yeah, um, there's a couple of things that would be nice if they changed up, like the keyword stuff with uh, the Firebelly for sure. Mornfang actually are one thing that kind of suffers from that too. It's like they are Beast Claw Raiders, uh, but they're also like they're right, rhino best... the rhinox yeah exactly like they they're really only ever like doing trampling charge on fives which is kind of weird when you think like they have like massive spears on front of them like they should be doing way more damage than that uh and then the biggest thing i think is just kind of fleshing out some of the older models in the range so like our man eaters our yetis they've just done the gorgers which is awesome like that's one resin model that we don't really have to see on the tabletop anymore um so yeah just, just fleshing out what we already have, I think, is big. Because we actually have a decent amount of options. I'm going to say something that uh, I'm sure I'm going to cop later on Discord. People are going to just, like, clip this and throw it in my face forever. 
Noblar hero. I want, I want a Noblar hero. Make it like three Noblars in a trench coat. Make it like a, a, a Noblar. You know, like the, um, I don't know if you've seen the Cities of Sigmar range where you've got like a Fusilier on top of an Ogre. Like, give me give me a, a Noblar on top of an Ogre or a Noblar on top of something, like a Yeti or whatever. Like, give me a Noblar hero because you've got the Scrap Launcher, you've got the Noblars on foot. Give me like the old Doom, not the Doom Wheels, the um, the I can't remember what it's called. These do like a Snotling Pump Wagon. Like give me some, give me some more ways to build around Noblars because they're fun. I love the character. They bring a different build, but right now they just play the role of screen. Like let me, yeah. let me, let me bring another dimension to them. Let them be screens, but let me actually make a viable list out of them too. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be kind of fun if you could lean into like almost Skaven aspects where it's just like one of us is going to die today and it might be me, but we're going to, we're going to see what happens kind of thing. Like, so like the kind of suicidal, like frontline nature of, of Noblars for sure could be, could be fun to play on. If you do yeah. want to scratch the itch of like three Noblars in a trench coat though, I think it's Rothgorn's man trappers that uh, they have like one Noblar sitting on the shoulders of any other, of another, which is like hitting with a hammer essentially. So that's kind of fun. I just imagine like the red gobbo, but as a nobbler, like just like some weird trench coat, crazy nobbler who somehow has got some form of power and leadership in, in the ogres, make it a named character even, and let it like be the, the champion of the nobblers. That, that, that would get me. That would get me. It would get me too. But <laughs> anything new for ogres gets me. So it's an easy sell. Carlson, if people want to hear more from you, we've already mentioned earlier um, Saga of Dice on YouTube. They put out uh, regular content, battle reports, uh, AOS chats. So they're frequently putting out content and you are a, a reoccurring guest, it appears. So if people want to hear more from you, um, they can come see you, obviously, in the Pacific Northwest. They can see you on Saga of Dice. Are you on the socials at all? Are you hanging out on Discord or Facebook groups? Or if people want to chat to you about ogres, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Saga of Dice Discord is a place that you can easily find me. I don't really have any like Warhammer-related social media accounts, so you can't re reach me there, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, through any of the discords, there's a Pacific Northwest Discord, a British Columbia Discord if you're in Canada, like I am. Uh, so Discord's probably the best spot. Cool. So go to Saga of Dice's YouTube channel, go give him a subscribe, and I'm sure Rob in his videos have a link to the, or you can message Rob, um, the the channel owner, to to get that link. So I, I, I'll go check them out. Go go click the sub while you're there. Carlson, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate not only your thoughts, but your dog's thoughts. I think uh, both of you have given us a really good understanding and thought around where ogres are currently sitting in General's Handbook. We've had a couple of months of experience. Obviously, the meta is shifting and continuing to evolve. So keep practicing and playing with your ogres. Hopefully, this is giving you some ideas, some examples. Doesn't mean that you have to take this list and this is the only way to be competitive. It's purely just a example of how a top tier player is thinking about the army currently in the meta. Any shout outs, by the way, is anyone you want to say hello to um, or we'll wrap it up? I'm sure you've got some peeps you want to like mad props to. Uh, <laughs> on the spot, I didn't think about this. No, I mean, yeah, thanks to everyone that's been helping me kind of just get into the hobby. Like, uh, my club has been super inclusive and nice. Uh, everyone in my club is. Uh, warp, dice. warp dice yeah shout out to all the warp dice people um 
there's a lot of competitive people in there. Like Matthias Cruchel is uh, in my club. We, he's been like fantastic to learn against Dale Johnson in my club as well. Like really, really, really good. Gits and Daughters of Cain player. Both of them have kind of helped shape the player that I am. Rob Johnson, of course, too. The uh, Saga of Dice uh, owner. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot more people that I missed, but yeah, thank you, everyone. Uh, I put him on the spot there, so I'm sure if he didn't get acknowledged, it's because he just he's just um, under the sheer pressure of excitement of of uh, having to talk to Og about ogres just under three hours. You talked ogres for two hours. We've actually talked almost three hours. So yeah. um, I'm sure the all the meat lovers of the world have enjoyed this discussion, taken some ideas, some value. Hopefully, that uh, kind of helps you take your your game to the next level. And uh, I guess. Carson, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Everyone, uh, again, if you're thinking about buying The Long Hunt or any of your hobby supplies, check out uh, my partners, as I mentioned, Warpfire Minis over in the USA or Element Games in the UK. I'm sure I'll get an Australian one in the near future. Uh, and don't forget, if you want to talk more ogres, we do have a ogre-dedicated uh, area in my Discord server, as well as talking you know, with over 8,000 Age of Sigmar players who really cool cats i really enjoy my discord they are uh, wonderful people and there's a lot of great discussion going on but carson's going to go do his thing i'm going to go take the dog for a walk and uh, i hope you all enjoyed this discussion see you everyone yep see you bye thanks for hanging around until the end i hope you enjoyed that video and you walked away with a few new ideas now if you did i would love it if you press like on the video as well as left me a comment with your thoughts the conversation will continue over on Discord, and the link is down below in the episode description. I also want to give a massive shout out to the AOS Coach patrons and YouTube members who are supporting the channel and the growth that you're seeing here. So cheers, you are all bloody legends. And until next time, don't roll a double one on a spell cast.